Hello, everybody, and welcome. I have uh, Jacob with me from uh, Now Motor News. So, how are you doing, Jacob? And for everybody who doesn't know you, please introduce yourself. Yeah. Uh, hi, guys. As said, uh, Jacob from Now Motor News, uh, Instagram and Facebook uh, problem child, I guess some would say. Um, I, yeah, I just, hi, I just decided to come along and talk about MotoGP, which is, you know, quite a nice pastime of mine. <laughs> Yeah, which is funny because uh, I didn't uh, have a plan for what to discuss. I just wanted to talk to you about MotoGP and usually the conversations just uh, kind of resolve themselves because when you talk about MotoGP, there's always uh, something to talk about. And um, then the whole Sean Dylan Kelly shit uh, dropped. And uh, yeah, we talked about it a little bit on Instagram, but I don't know necessarily what's going on. I... Uh, know you talk to sean so um yeah, yeah if we could uh, discuss this situation this would be great for everybody who doesn't know sean is racing for american racing team in moto 2 in his second season now he's coming over or came over from moto america and uh, he had arm palm surgery in the summer break and sat out silverstone because of it because he wasn't 100 uh, fit and um yeah, then now we are in a situation where American Racing Team dropped him basically mid-season and replaced him by Marcos Ramirez. And Marcos Ramirez will be replaced at forward by Alberto Sura. And it's extremely weird because Sean was doing a good job. He was developing. And now we have an American Racing Team without an American rider and a Spaniard and a British rider, which is rather weird. So what do you know about the whole situation? What's your take on it? Yeah, so as you've said, uh, I've spoken to Sean about this. Um, he has told me I'm allowed to tell the truth. And the truth is that he is 100% bike fit. He's been out riding. He's been out training. He is 100% bike fit and would be able to race that bike at Austria if he was afforded the opportunity to. Now, it's a strange one that the team has put out the statement that he is out to recover and Ramirez will replace him for an indefinite amount of time. Now, knowing that he is in fact bike fit, he's been proving he is bike fit on his social medias by riding 600s, riding supermotors, riding everything. I think we can safely say who is bullshitting you. And I don't believe it is the rider. Yeah, the thing is, when you look at his social media, you see him riding a supermoto, a minibike, and a 600. And it looks like he's trying to call bullshit on American Racing's statement without actually calling bullshit on it and just trying to basically put the information out and let everybody with uh, two eyes and a brain sort it out by themselves. And it's uh, very, very strange why American racing is lying so obviously. I mean, they yeah. could just tell the truth or like pick a lie which is a little bit uh, more believable. Yeah, that's it. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a strange one to me. Um well i i think we know it's all like a lot of MotoGP is politics that's how it is in this day and age now it's all political 
if you don't fit the bill of what the team want, you are out. It's that simple. How Sean does not fit the bill of American racing is absolutely beyond me. When you consider the fact that he's American, he's a good-looking boy. Let's be let's be real here. You know, he's a poster boy, and he is super fast. Like, yes, okay, he's not at the top of Moto Two just yet, but he is super quick. He's super talented. You know, he needs time to develop because. Both him and Zonta, they had the most difficult task in Moto2. They came from national championships, basically. Although, yeah, Junior World Championship Moto3, but it's basically in Spain, isn't it? You know, and Sean came from Moto America 600s. Neither of those are in the World Championship, and they are progressing together pretty much. So, you you know, you can tell that the progression for SDK is they. And it would continue. Top 15s, top 10s, top 7s, top 5s. That's, that, that's how it goes. You don't just hop from a national championship into the best riders in Moto2 in the world and just succeed. It just doesn't happen. So for him to be quite obviously targeted by this team, which is supposed to be promoting American talent, but then left and I mean this in the most respectful way possible to Rory Skinner, a worst-performing British rider on their team, and then drafting in a Spaniard to replace the American on your team, the mind baffles. Uh, ART need to wake up and realise, actually, do you know what? We, we fucked this up. There's no other way to put it. We've cocked this up. If they If they came out and said... Look, okay, yeah, we are replacing Sean. We're sorry we put out this statement. The fact is that yes, we are, are replacing by, with Ramirez at the end of the till the end of the season. You could respect that, like, but to come out and do this so shadily, with no reason whatsoever, really, like, it can't be performance based because he's been progressing. I just baffling. Um, I wanted to say that. If you are listening to this and you wanted to go and offer your support to, to SDK at Sean Dilla Kelly on Instagram, uh, go and give him a message. Go and give him a like, you know, a comment of support because he needs this right now because he has no idea why he's been replaced. We have no idea why he's been replaced. And although the team say indefinite amount of time, we it's pretty much nailed on that he will be to the end of the season. You know, it's just, it's a joke, quite simply. And it's all political. The thing is, when I stepped into the MotoGP world uh, with my account, and I was just like a naive fan back then, and I started to get to know like the shady sides of the paddock, then step by step. And when you're looking for a solution to a problem, 95% of the time, money is the right answer. So I don't know how Sean's financial backings are. I don't want to speculate about all of this stuff. Uh, I don't know the same about Marcus Ramirez, but it looks very, very strange. And like the, what you said, if you don't fit the bill, you're out. The same with Remy Gardner. Remy Gardner is the most dominant Moto2 world champion in recent memory. He's 
significantly better than Augusto Fernandez was in Moto two. And um oh, I don't know about significantly, but I mean if you <laughs> compare Augusto's championship winning season to Remy's championship winning season, you could quite comfortably say if both were in on IO in the same year, he would have beaten him by a mile. Because he has scored more points per races. He was what was more consistent than um than Augusto was. And he was quite simply the faster one. He had better competition with Raul Fernandez. He had, uh, I mean, a very strange situation with the whole COVID thing, which we saw in 2020 kind of was difficult to deal with for a rider. And 2022 was more or less back to normal. And we actually saw them side by side. I mean... Augusto Fernandez was racing for uh, Mark VDS at the time. And yes, Ayo is a better team and Ayo gets more out of you than Mark VDS. But Remy and Raul were head and shoulders above everybody, including Marco Bezzecchi, who's now a front runner in MotoGP. So for whatever reason Remy got dropped, it was not because of his performance. No. And uh, like the same with Sean Dillon Kelly. He came from uh, Moto America, as you said. And I talked with Remy a lot about this because he came from the GP paddock and is now at World Superbike and everything is different there. And he has said it's so difficult to adapt because I've basically grown up in the GP paddock and now I have to race a stock bike. And with Sean, it's the opposite. He raced stock bikes his entire life and is now going to GP bikes who are very, very stiff, very difficult to ride. You have to really be aggressive on those uh, bikes. And the tires are very, very different to everything you've known from whatever you raced at. And the competition is so high. You have to learn all the tracks. You have to be very, very precise with your riding because everybody has the same bike. And Sean is developing in a good way. Yes, he's not in the points consistently. Yes, he's not racking up wins. He's no Pedro Acosta, but who is? And he is doing a good job. So is it performance wise okay yes i think his performance is good when you <laughs> consider the circumstances um was it a step too much to go to moto 2 i don't know you have to ask him this uh, yourself but um i think that whatever reason there is it's not performance related i don't know about money stuff and all of this stuff but um the whole idea behind american racing is to take riders out of america who are good in uh in american racing like, not the team American Racing in the American Racing scene. Yeah, everybody knows. It's all good. <laughs> and um, and take them over to uh, Moto2 like they did with Cambobier. But Cambobier was quite old. He won like five or six Moto America titles. I don't know. And five? Yeah. And then uh, went to Moto2 like in his late 20s, early 30s. Something along the line. And this was quite frankly, a failure because not to disrespect Cameron Bobier and his results there because he was doing a very good job. But the project was to get him over into the GP battle, be like two or three years in Moto2 and then go to MotoGP. And yes. they obviously failed on this plan because Cam wanted to go back home and all good. I mean, if he wants to go back home, he can go back home. So the thing is, 
Sean is a very, very young guy. I don't know how old he is, like 19 or 20, I believe you said. Yeah. And um, when you give him five years in Moto2 and then go with him into MotoGP, then you still have a pretty young MotoGP rider. So exactly. theoretically, he could be eight years in Moto2 and then go to MotoGP. So we, yeah, he has a lot of time. And I don't necessarily believe that it has anything to do with performance. 100% uh, nothing to do with uh, with his injury. But um, yeah, it's a very bad look for a team which is supposed to bring American talent over to uh, over to Europe into the GP scene. And now they have no American rider. They have Rory Skinner and Marcos Ramirez. And again, I don't want to be disrespectful to uh, to Marcos Ramirez, but it's not like he's the savior. He's a below-average Moto2 rider himself. He raced for the team. He collected, I believe, in uh, if I remember correctly, I looked it up on Wikipedia, uh, 37 points in his rookie season in 2020, like 39 points in... Um, in his sophomore season at American Racing. And then uh, at forward last season, he scored five points. So it's yeah. not like Marcos Ramirez is the next big thing you don't want to miss out on. Yeah, well, that's it, isn't it? Like, I will defend Marcos on the forward bike, which is you know very clearly the worst bike in Moto2 at the moment. And it's, it's not even close. It's by a margin. So anyone would struggle to score points on that. However, the two previous seasons, he was looking good, you know, impressing on the his debut season in ART. And then kept for 2021, you thought, oh, okay, he's going to step up now. And it just never happened. He just could not make that breakthrough. So why they are bringing someone back who has failed to make that breakthrough in their setup already while casting out a rider who has a ceiling potential higher, like only SDK knows whether he can reach that level, first and foremost. But to not even allow him to have the opportunity to be able to do it? Like, why Dorna have not stepped in and said, you are the American racing team. Your whole MO is to bring American talent through. You are not to get rid of this American rider. If you want to bring in this Spaniard, you do it in 2024. That that's, that should be the bottom line. Otherwise, don't play ball, off you go. Yeah. But for some reason, Dorna turned a blind eye to this. It's, it's very strange. Very strange. Yeah. And the thing with American racing is I've heard from people that uh, they don't pay their coaches or don't pay a coach or two coaches, but... Uh, they are not very dependable when it comes to payments. <laughs> yeah, that's and, an understatement. <laughs> yeah, but that's like a bad look for a team in itself. And then when you have this problem, then to sack your rider and lie to the public in the most obvious um, way possible, it's just a very, very bad look for the team in general. And I don't know what's going on there. I mean... Yeah. Yeah. The thing that's all there is to it, isn't it? It's like yeah. you, you're looking at it and you're thinking, there's only one problem child here, and it's not the rider because the rider is out there proving that he can ride a bike. Yeah. Like, at what point do you stop and say, well, hang on a minute, if he's bike fit 
Why is he not in the team that he has a contract for 2023 with? And why are they saying he's not fit? It's, it's just, it's so shady. Like the, the shadiness of this whole thing is just, it's, it's not funny. Like it genuinely is a joke and it needs to be sorted out because yep. this is someone's career on the line, quite yep. simply. You know, like, like with respect to SDK, he's not yet been able to prove enough that, you know, Moto2 te- Moto teams are going to be snapping his arm off. But he's not been afforded the opportunity either. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's a real catch-22 because you need to prove yourself for a team to want you to prove yourself to a team to want you. And he he cracked it. And we thought, oh, great, you know, young American kid, very exciting, very talented, coming through. He's going to be in this Moto2 paddock for a while, learn his craft over the next three years, then potentially look at a MotoGP seat if ART managed to get the MotoGP slot. Even now, without like, American racing in MotoGP, you can get him into MotoGP. Yeah, because he's so marketable. this is not a necessity for him to. If if he's doing good in Moto Two, and you don't have to be world champion, you don't have to be uh, like even in the contention for a title. Look at Jake Dixon. I've talked with people in 2021 that Dorna wants Jake Dixon in Moto GP, and it's not because of his talent. I mean, he's doing good, and he developed in a good way, but. He is no Pedro Acosta again. He's there are more talented riders in Moto Two, but still we are talking about uh, Jake Dixon going to MotoGP next year. He has won one goddamn race. I mean, let's not be kidding ourselves. It's because he is Brit- a British rider, and Dorna wants a British rider on the grid, which is fair enough. I mean, yeah. I don't want to argue that, but um, with like an American rider, you don't have to be world champion to go into MotoGP. You have to be just good enough for teams to pick you off or pick you up. Yeah, well, that's it. Um, like, I agree with you in that Jake Dixon, I do not believe, deserves a MotoGP seat. I know I'm going to get heat for that. Come at me. But the fact of the matter is there are three or four riders in that Moto2 paddock at the moment who I would promote onto that Grassini seat over him. Uh, five. I have five on the top of my head who are better than... Yeah. Uh, well, for me, I'd promote Arbolino, Acosta, Philip Salach, and oh, at a whim, maybe Agura. But Agura is very... I'm not sure he's still recovered yet. So whether he could be able to handle a MotoGP bike is another story. Alonso Lopez? Nope. What? You would give Jake Dixon a MotoGP seat over Alonso Lopez? I wouldn't give either of them a MotoGP seat, honestly. No, but if, if you had to choose between oh, those two. If I two. had to pick one of those? Oh, that's a tough choice because both are mentally fragile. It's an easy choice. Alonso Lopez is so incredibly fast. He's so good. He is quick, like absolutely. But as a, I'm thinking as a rider package, and that's where Lopez and Dixon, for me, both of those have not got what it takes to be on a MotoGP seat because they're so mentally fragile. Lopez under pressure crumbles. Look at Dixon last weekend at Silverstone. You know, the pressure of the home race and then the rant, which by the way, best video you ever made, but the Thank rant. Thank you very much. Oh my God. Like, at what point do, is a MotoGP team going to look at that and think, yeah, this emotional 27-year-old, you know, father is crying about a guy who's f- blameless in a turn one incident 
I agree one? with Jake Dixon on what he said, and I think he's incredibly funny. I mean, I'm not the biggest Jake Dixon fan out here, but I enjoyed the video because I think it's good. It's refreshing to see some emotions, and I yes. I watch a lot of UFC, and I see KO UFC fighters getting interviewed all the time, and so I'm kind of used to it. And I guess the MotoGP paddock are full of a bunch of snowflakes who will cry about it. But um, I think that, A, the interview was cool. I liked it. And I don't get the backlash because it's a rider in his home GP with all the emotions. And, of course, it's Jake Dixon who has, like, extra emotions. I mean, he was weird uh, when he won the race in Assen, uh, jumping there like a little kid who goes to Disneyland for the first time. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I don't have a problem with the video. And I think uh, Darren Binder was clearly at fault there. Whoa, 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 I can't, yeah. no, oh, yeah. whoa, no. I know you don't like Darren, but come on. No, no, no. I mean, I don't necessarily like both of them, so it's not like uh, I'm having a favorite here. Okay, okay, so, hit me with your thing, and then I'll give you my opinion yeah. on it. We'll... The thing is, Jake Dixon somehow overtook Darren Binder or whatsoever, and the first camera thing we see is uh, Jake going out of the uh, veil chicane a little bit a little bit wide but not like extremely wide he was wide and there was a gap for Darren Binder and Darren Binder kind of took this gap the problem I have is Jake Dixon was in front the entire time and the gap which existed while they were accelerating kind of closed as soon as they uh, came to the corner and since Darren Binder was behind Jake Dixon the entire time and not like by a centimeter or two he was by like half a bike length or three quarters of a bike length behind uh, jake dixon and in my opinion it's jake's corner there he was in every right to go there because if he went wider he would have lost all the positions and darren binder was in a position where he saw a gap went for it and then there should have been the split second to realize okay shit this gap is close closing and just tap the rear brake a little bit and don't fucking hit, hit him okay because um, you can't go side by side uh, through this corner and sure. jake dixon was in front so he kind of pushed him uh, and then jake uh, crashed like while i do agree that dixon was in front I think one thing you haven't taken into consideration is the fact that Arenas was up the inside of Darren Binder. This, for me, is the the critical point that people are missing. Because if Binder had tapped the brake, that's a three-rider pileup because Arenas wouldn't have anywhere to go. No, just not brake significant. Just tap the rear brake a little bit and let Jake uh, go past, and you are still in, in position to accelerate out of the corner quite uh, fast. I'm not sure it was possible, genuinely, only because Arenas was right up the inside. And I think people are sort of missing that point, because going three wide there is not a sensible option, regardless, you know? And if you're the guy on the outside, chances are you're probably going to get fucked. There's no other way to put it. Yes, but so, the like, guy to, on the outside still was in, in front and should have gotten the corner because Darren Binder went there for a gap which kind of existed while they were accelerating out of the valley chicane, but then closed when they uh, came to the corner, like the last yeah. corner on the circuit. It was completely closed. 
I have the video on my phone, and uh, like for me, the, the, I the have... one thing is that although Dixon, I agree, Dixon was in front completely. It's not his corner when he's on the outside. You, you I have the video on my phone, and I'm just checking the video on my laptop. Yeah, yeah, have a look. Like you can't, but for me, you can't expect someone to back off when you're the one on the outside. You know. I totally disagree about the whole um, Albert Arenas uh, thing. I just paused the video while they were making contact, and Albert Arenas was like a bike length or whatsoever behind Darren Binder. So I don't believe if he tapped the brake a little bit, that uh, Arenas would have been affected uh, where he could have avoided, couldn't have avoided uh, Darren Binder, you know? I well, don't think that Arenas was in a position where it should have affected him too much. Like, when you see it from behind, the replay version, it looks like Arenas is uh, very close, but then when you watch the live broadcast uh, thing you see that Arenas is a wide, like, let's say two meters behind Darren Binder. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, I mean, it's all opinions, isn't it? You know, um, like my, mine is that Dixon put himself in the wrong position, expecting someone to just let him through because he won the previous race. But and it's that not... Did not happen. It's not that he expects someone to let him through because he was already passed and he was half a bike length in front of him. And therefore, I think that uh, he should have uh, just backed out a little bit. I think Dixon should have been the one to back out. He no, have I, think, run. I think Darren Binner should have been the one to back out. <laughs> there we are. It's okay. We won't agree, but that's fine. You know, it's uh, like uh, the only thing for me, though, is I do actually agree with people who are saying that he shouldn't have a microphone thrown in his face after that i love let me tell you why it's nothing to do with emotions nothing to do with putting a putting something in front of a rider but if you're tnt sports right and you are trying to promote british talent and get your british rider to moto gp why on earth have you gone to him when he is emotional and if we're being totally honest, he is your product. He's your British rider who you are trying to make into the next big thing for TNT Sports, BT as it were, now TNT Sports. Why would you actively go and make your product look bad by giving him an interview when he is not clearly in the right frame of mind? It goes back to the politics statement of earlier. If they had let him calm down, then gave him the interview, in team's eyes, in, you know, politically eyes, he's going to come off so much better than he did. But then again, we have this uh, point I pointed out a couple of minutes ago. The paddock is full of snowflakes. And if you think Darren Bin, uh, not Darren Bin, sorry, Jake Dixon doesn't deserve a MotoGP seat because of this little interview. I mean, come on. And he is PR trained. He should have behaved not like a little child, but we're in the entertainment business. This was hugely entertainment, uh, entertaining. And I actually don't have a problem with him uh, putting the, um, or with him putting this statement on. I mean, I have several issues with the statement, like he wasn't going to fight for a championship either way. Yeah. 
I mean, he's completely delusional if he thinks he can battle Tony Avellino or Pedro Acosta. I mean, what the fuck? He won one race and acts like Mark Marcus. Um, And then uh, his statement towards the end, I will try to win as many GPs as as he can. But like, if he's going to pull a Peko and win like five GPs in a row now, I mean, this was completely delusional, but... um, like the whole reaction to his um, to his incident with Darren Binder, I thought was hugely entertaining. And if the MotoGP community wouldn't be full of snowflakes, we wouldn't have made such a big deal out of it. It was super hilarious, and I would like to see more of it. Not not just Jake Dixon. I would like to see more emotion out of riders because they are all like PR trained robots who are extremely boring. Like their social media is owned by their uh, manufacturers. They can't be themselves. And if they are themselves, they crash a car drunk in Ibiza. So um, like, what the fuck? I mean, I don't, generally, I don't understand the problem people have with this interview because Jack Dixon is a good rider. He should have a MotoGP seat when you consider everything with the British rider stuff. Like talent-wise, no, I think they're, five guys in uh, Moto2 who are um, quite obviously more deserving of a Moto GP seat. And like you could argue about Philip Salaj. I would give Jack Dixon the, the seat over Philip Salaj, but um, you could argue about those uh, kind of um, decisions. But um, just from an entertainment perspective, you want those interviews because those interviews uh, go viral and put eyeballs mm-hmm. on the sport. And I think it's hilarious. I don't understand the problem people have with it. It's it's not about the hilarity of it for me, though. Like, what I'm thinking about it, like, when I watched it, my first thought was just, oh, my God, you know? And that's not the first thing you want MotoGP to be when you, you know, if someone who had never watched MotoGP before clicked on that interview, they would be thinking, what the fuck is this? But Jake Dixon is equally ridiculous when he uh, has the interview with uh, Simon Crafer in Assen after his victory. Like jumping there, I can't even put it into words. Yeah, I mean, what the I fuck? Just... This was equally ridiculous. But yeah. I kind of like it when uh, Jake Dixon is ridiculous because it's funny to me. But it's not marketable. That's the thing. Like, you know, if you're going to put him on a Red Bull can just say for the sake of argument because it's just the biggest thing I could think of at the time like you know if he picked up Red Bull sponsorship would you want to put him on a can would he sell on a can does Peko Banyaya sell I mean Peko is the most boring champion we basically ever had true but like Jorge Lorenzo was more entertaining than uh, Peko true I will give you that true Nobody in MotoGP shows any personality like except Fabio and Mark because they have this fuck you statement uh, status oh. that they can do whatever they want and people will still respect. And Mark has a lot more of this fuck you uh, money in this sense than uh, Fabio has. But um, like Valentin Rossi he could do whatever. I mean, nobody cared because it mm. was Vale. And I Did think you we need that. Like what? You Sorry, have to earn that status. Yeah, sure, you have to earn it. But I still believe that more emotion 
would be nice because we only see it from the people who have this fuck you money in a sense like not i mean they have yeah. literal fuck you money but also like from a sport uh, respect like nobody's gonna drop mark marcus because he's shitting honda on uh, fabio's comment comment section like yeah, well, that's it. i mean this is absolutely hilarious and i think we need more of this but, but i think um, that's the thing is it's like if dixon's up here perko's there i think you need to be in the middle in the middle is a good balance of being yourself being marketable while not looking like a knob on national tv i think there yes. is a difference to it yes jake is making a fool out of himself but my point is he's doing it either way if he wins or if he crashes he's just making a fool out of himself and by the way while we are talking about it i recently discovered that he unblocked me on twitter which is an achievement so uh, <laughs> i want to pat me on the back for not being blocked by jack dixon anymore well you might be after this now <laughs> <laughs> i don't think he will watch this well i mean if he does hi jake <laughs> Yeah, for example, what you said, like Pedro. Pedro is a good example for showing character. Pedro is funny. You, you just like what Pedro does, like how he handed uh, the Mark VDS mechanic, the pizza uh, thing in yeah. in Mugello. It's super funny, but people were still arguing about this that this was immature and all of this. It's it's funny. I mean, no, like I completely agree. It was it was the right level of personality while simultaneously not looking like a cock. You know, that is a fine line to cross because yeah. it can go either way. Yeah. Especially when it's a celebration. Like, it can go either way. But he he smashed it in that it was both funny, it was wholesome, and he came out of it looking better than when he went in, which, you know, that, that's that's all you need to do. Like, just everybody should take note and be like, look, this is the example you need to to follow you know be yourself don't smash cars into into ibiza obviously but other than that be yourself you know like it's it's not it's really not a difficult thing to be yourself but if yourself is too much then maybe rein it in for the sake of your career but the thing is like in society you always have people who are funny and socially accepted then you have these quieter people like for example peko is and then you have those outrageously ridiculous people like jake dixon is who are emotionally on the level of a 13 year old like my uh my neighbor's daughter uh, me and my girlfriend were uh doing some stuff with her uh like she uh she's extremely into horses and my girlfriend rides so um we showed her a little bit of all the stuff my girlfriend's doing uh, with her horse or she um, yeah she came over to play a little bit with the dogs and the cats because she she loves them she adores them and like doing this and I think she's more emotionally stable than Jake Dixon is so yeah yeah you have those people but it's ridiculously funny and if I was Dorna I would try to get more out of the rider's personality because you have like Marco Bezzecchi who seems like a very very interesting and cool dude but mm. there there is no interview with him after his crash like you no know? yeah yeah that's I mean, it with the UFC, I'm kind of used to people getting interviewed after they just won and are extremely emotional or after just being brutally chaos <laughs> and don't know what they're talking about. Knocked so, out, uh, kicked to the head. <laughs> yeah. I mean, could also be that Jake Dixon was concussed. I mean, his crash, 
Possible. This wasn't out of character, so I I don't think if the, you know if if he had said this after being a you know a calm, level-headed guy in every other interview, you could say okay something was wrong there. But this is but, classic Jake Dixon. Yeah, but maybe his voice of reason was a little bit uh, quieter than normal. Quite could possible. Be. I think, like I, for me, the the big problem I have though is just as I said, you, you know, why TNT felt the need to paint their product in such a stupid light. <laughs> They don't know how Jack reacts. I mean, it could be that Jake is completely reasonable about the crash and admits his own mistake. I mean, well, he turned down the interview and they made him do it. No. <laughs> how so did that they kind make... of says to me, well, hang on, you knew what was coming. How do you make a rider? Do an I interview. I saying, do you want this MotoGP seat? Do you want our help? You do this fucking interview, mate. Yeah, but what is BT Sports going to do about a Grisini seat? Well, there's money in it. They fund it. They fund Jake Dixon? Oh, now we're getting into it. Which is why I thought it was crazy that they then went and painted someone who, again, is their product... You know, who they are pouring resources into to then go and paint them like that. But I think we are completely blowing this out of proportion. We're completely overreacting to this interview. After Austria, nobody will talk about this anymore. And if mm. today was a GP, then nobody would talk about it either. We would be sitting here and talking about Jake Dixon. So I think... When you just view it from a marketing kind of perspective and you are TNT who just force him to do this interview and you get all the clicks in the world because he's being absolutely ridiculous and um, then you kind of achieve your goal calculating that nobody will talk about it uh, after two weeks anymore. Like if in Austria something happens, we will only talk about this and nobody will be like, yeah, but remember uh, three weeks ago, Jake Dixon did this ridiculous interview. Mm. Nobody will do this. Yeah, the MotoGP world moves a bit quick, which yeah. is it's a blessing for Jake. Because if if it didn't, and we were still discussing this, you know, a month down the line, uh, he's gonna just come out of it looking stupid. And like, I I really hate to criticize any rider, but I think a bit of restraint was all he needed. A bit like if he just been diplomatic and said, "Yeah, I don't agree with Darren's actions here. I'm I'm still gonna fight for the championship." I'm still going to go and do my best and then let as many GPs as I can. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, as if he wasn't already trying to win every GP. Like, come on, mate. You know what I mean? It just don't be ridiculous. Like, it, you yeah. just come out of it looking ridiculous. It's, it's, it's that simple. Like, there's but just like, no reason for his outburst then. But I like the ridiculousness. And my point is, I need more of. I need more of Jake Dixon. I need more of Pedro Acosta. I don't need think more I could of... watch another one of those Jake Dixon clips. <laughs> if that came up on Twitter now, I would just be like, block. But the thing is, you watched it live. I watched it because I don't have the TNT broadcast. I watched I, it I like didn't. five I, I, hours I saw later. It on, uh, I'm oh, you actually saw World after. Feed, I am. Okay. I, uh, I actually don't like TNT for what it's worth. I, uh, I can't stand the commentators on there. Okay. But, yeah. Uh, but... I thought maybe this was a difference. And um, I also believe Jack Dixon will get the MotoGP seat sooner or later because he got the Aspa seat. I mean, 
apparently Alonso Lopez uh, was supposed to get this seat, but then uh, the whole Petronas uh, thing fell through and then Jake Dixon got it. Yep. And uh, Donna was supporting him in this sense, and I think they will continue to support him despite being so ridiculous uh, to him getting a MotoGP seat. And imagine the eyeballs if something like this happens in MotoGP. How incredibly ridiculous would it be if Jake Dixon is talking the exact same trash about Mark Marquez? I mean, this would make national news. How does he get a deal with Mark Marquez if, if he goes to MotoGP? Because Mark ain't going to look at him twice. He's just going to off you pop. Oh. Yeah, but like the state where the Honda is right now, I could definitely see uh, Jack Dixon on a Grisini battling with Mark Marquez on a Honda. Oh, well, will Mark Marquez be on a Honda, though? Oh. I think that Honda won't let him go. And I think I might have noticed that the whole... Um, the whole tone Mark is speaking in changed after he realized he can't get out of Honda. Because like at the beginning of the season, he was very critical. Like when he was asked, will you be there? I'm focusing on the bike right now. And now he's a little bit more um, in tune with Honda in 2024. So I think one or maybe two doors shut there where he thought, hey, I'm Mark Marcus. I will get a Ducati factory seat. And maybe Ducati didn't play this game with him. And maybe Honda wanted to have some kind of bailout fine like um, like Suzuki had. And Mark was arrogant enough to think Ducati will pay it for him to go to Ducati. I mean, I'm just speculating here. I don't know. But I am under the impression that something in Mark Marcus changed from I'm going not, I'm not going to be here. I'm not going to be here. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> to, okay, how do we solve this issue for 2024? Well, that's it. Like, Mark's paid 25 million a year by Honda. They would have to pay at least that to get him out of there. But, but then, on again, the flip side of that, is it maybe that Mark has seen what is coming for 2024? No. Because the bike no. Stefan Bradl was testing out in secret it was basically a KDM. Yes. And I mean, Honda brought new era to Silverstone, which was tested by Takanakagami. But the thing is, Honda's problem isn't the error. I mean, it's a part of their problem. Honda's general problem, and I talked about it with uh, Simon Crafer, so I respect his opinion a lot, is coming from the electronic department. And Honda is too arrogant to do what KTM did. KTM brought in all the uh, Ducati engineers and basically found a solution. And I've heard that Alberto Puig went to Honda with the list of engineers who are available for uh, Honda. And Honda basically said, no, we will do it our own. And with this mentality, Honda will never solve the issues because Ducati kind of um, completed the electronic game. I mean, it's ridiculous how good the Ducati is in the electronic department. And they have the same electronic in World Superbike. So uh, the World Superbike electronic is working so incredibly well in yep. comparison like with Kawasaki or Yamaha. And the same with uh, MotoGP. The, the electronics is working so well. And you don't solve this by yourself in a couple of months. So I think whatever Honda does, I think... It's possible that they bring a better bike. 
but it's impossible that they bring a bike which is competitive to Ducati. But then, <laughs> but then that's where Mark Marquez makes the difference. And that is the thing. If he thinks he's seen something, this is my opinion. If he thinks he has seen something where Honda can make enough of a jump. So say the Ducati's here, Honda's here. If they can get to there, Mark Marquez can do the rest. You know, he's still the single best rider on that field, bar none. And it's not even close. Like the things I disagree. That's I disagree fine. again. <laughs> That's fine. Um, but to me, the things that Mark Marquez has been able to do on two wheels, the only other rider I think could match him in terms of just sheer outright talent and probably beats him, if I'm honest, is Casey Stoner. That's the levels that we are keeping in terms of sheer talent. So if he gets a bike that is better, is more aero-focused... You know, aero is a big problem for Honda. Electronics definitely are the biggest problem because you can see the thing just doesn't want to go out of a corner. And all the Honda riders are having on-throttle high sights. Nobody has on-throttle yeah, high sights. Not in this day and age, you're correct. That's it. The, the electronics catch it, but not for Honda. So you can see, like, it can't get out of a corner, right? The aero then is so basic in that if you look at Ducati, KTM, Aprilia, they are so sculpted. Every single line on that bike is designed to be in tune with the next line of the bike with Aero. Whereas Yamaha and Honda, they look like someone's just gone and glued wings onto them, which is exactly what they've done. So they can't get out of a corner because of the electronics. They can't go into a corner because they have no front end because the Aero is not correct. So if the Aero side of it is improved massively and the electronics are better because you're not going to reach Ducati's level because they committed to Magneti Morellian electronics much faster than anybody else and now they are reaping the rewards for it. Which is, you know, fair enough. Like they 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 went in on it and now they're going it out. Fair enough. But if they can be better, then I believe Mark can actually do things on that bike that nobody else would be able to do. And it could be enough. I agree with you that Mark is exceptional. And when we talk pre-2020 Mark, I would 100% agree with you. But you can't convince me that these three years full of surgeries, injuries, whatever, have not taken a toll on him physically and mentally. Oh, absolutely. Like 2019 he is not Mark the same. He's is... not the same anymore. Yeah, like 2019 Mark was untouchable. Yes. Like, first and foremost. like The best I've ever seen. Yeah, like, well, well, literally the best we've ever seen in terms of points. Like, there's a chance we might not even reach that point total. We nearly double the races. And with sprint, yeah, with sprint with races. With sprint slides, yeah, you know, yeah, there's a chance right. we may not reach 420 points at all. <laughs> so for him to do that without sprints was just magical. And it would have been higher if not for a coat of failure. Yeah. So... I completely agree. Like, there's no way that Mark Marquez can reach that 2019 level. But I still think his best now is still better than anyone else on that grid. It's lower than the perfect Mark we saw, but it's still higher than everyone else. Well, I, for a long time, I believed Fabio Quattararo is the best rider on the grid. And it changed after 
Frankie somehow got his shit together because Frankie, in my opinion, is an exceptional rider and he's brutally underrated because of the Yamaha. Yep. Everybody thinks Frankie is shit and should be out of MotoGP. Watch him on a Ducati. Oh, yeah. Next year. Watch him. <laughs> this motherfucker was one engine blow up away from winning the world championship on a year-old Yamaha in a satellite team. Frankie Morbidelli is the real deal. If you watched him play with Alex Marcus in Moto2, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. He is good. Very and good. this underachievement with Yamaha made look Fabio so much better. Yes. Because Fabio was doing things on the Yamaha Valentino Rossi couldn't do and oh. Andrea Dovizioso couldn't do and Terminda, lol. <laughs> no, but Frankie Mobidelli couldn't do. Yeah. And quite frankly, this made him look incredibly good. Because those three riders I just mentioned aren't slow riders by themselves. Oh, I mean, there's no such those thing are as a slow exceptional rider. Yeah. Like, the, like even, even for MotoGP standards. I mean, yes, we make fun of Darren Binder. He's one of the best riders in the world. He's just not a Mark Marcus. Or yeah, like he, he is like, he's 99%, like, not 100%. Yeah. He's like 99.8%. Yeah. yeah. Like, this is the level. But for MotoGP standards, Darren Binder was a slow rider, yes. But for MotoGP riders, Valentino Rossi, the greatest of all time, Andrea Dovizioso, the only one who could beat Mark Marcus for like two or three years. And uh, and and um, and Franco Morbidelli, uh, almost a world champion in MotoGP, Moto2 world champ, he's exceptionally good. And Fabio made those three uh, riders look stupid. Mm. So... This is basically the reason why I thought Fabio was one of the, or like the best rider on the grid and just held back by the Yamaha a little bit. Right now, I kind of changed my opinion on that. And uh, to me, like Peko now is, I mean, with Peko, the thing is, if he can stop crashing for once, I mean, it would have been game over already. Yeah. We are just talking about a chance in the world championship because Peko is so goddamn stupid. Yeah. And I hated the interview he gave where he said, I will always fight for, for the victory. Like, mate, that's your fucking problem. Just settle for second or third once in your life and you'll be... Oh, yeah, but now, see, this is where we can get into the crux of Peko's problem. Because if he does back off, that's when he crashes. He is... This is where... I don't believe Peko is the real deal, and I'm going to get a ton of hate for this, I know. But I stand by it. Because I don't think Peko Banayo is the real deal because he is a mentally fragile rider. He beat the That's... weakest field of MotoGP in quite a long time, in my opinion, because nobody quite had the right package last year. If, if Fabio had had anything resembling a good bike he would have beaten him and if fabio quadraro is the target then someone like a 2019 mark marquez is gonna wipe the floor with both of those 10 times out of 10 when you compare people to 2019 mark marquez everybody will look stupid this but is true but like i, I, I think i can think i wouldn't put peco or fabio in the top five fastest MotoGP riders like at all like ever in i mean this season 
the thing with Paco is we have eight Ducatis on the grid. And I mean, the GP22 and the GP23, they aren't uh, the same bike, but still we have like eight Ducatis who are more or less equally competitive. He is wiping the floor with everybody. And he won last uh, season like five or six GPs more or less in a row. Yes. And yeah, Bastianini kind of disturbed this one, but he won so many races in the second half of the season where we are in a day and age of MotoGP, which is so competitive that nobody can be consistently at the front like Mark or Vale or Jorge Lorenzo or Casey Stoner were because it was a totally different time back then. Now everybody can win except Honda and uh, Yamaha. But um, <laughs> like I'm, I'm being that serious. Everybody can win day in, day out. It's so competitive. And he is still head and shoulders above everybody else. If he could stop crashing for once, I mean, he can be five, six-time world champion. No. I mean, he is incredibly good. And yeah, I, I, I agree. Like I, I and I'm not saying Paco sucks, like first and foremost, you know. But I think there's levels to the game. And for me, Peco is lucky that he is in this era. Because any other era, he would have he'd be wiped off the face of the earth by even the top five riders. Can you imagine putting Peco in, say, twenty ten in the alien era? He wouldn't come close to any of them. It depends on the bike. I mean, if he was on a Ducati, yes, because Ducati was shit back then. But if he was on the same bike as uh, Danny Pedrosa and Casey Stoner, why not? I Nowhere mean, Peck... Nowhere near. Like, it wouldn't even be a competition. He'd be half a second off every lap. Like, I, would, I, I would put that on record. I disagree. I think Peko is criminally underrated because the Ducati is so good. But when you compare him with other Ducati riders, the consistency he has, if he isn't crashing for once, is incredible. He's yes. always at the top. Nobody else can. I mean, Jorge Martin has the same bike. And Jorge Martin is a very, very, very good rider. But Jorge Martin can't uh, do anything on the bike except like two or three times a season. Yeah, well, that's it. Like, th this is where I think... It's skewed in a way because Peko is, how do I word this in a way that Peko is beating riders on that bike, yes. But any rider with any kind of talent on that Ducati, you know, who is going to go on to say GOAT status, you know, someone like Pedro Acosta, put Pedro on that Ducati after two years, three years, he will wipe the floor with Peko 10 times out of 10. And I think that's the level difference we are talking. Is Peko is there at the top of his era right now, which is fine. You know, like you can only beat what's in front of you and you have to respect the fact that he is able to beat everybody in front of him. But the next big thing is going to come along very soon. And when it does, Peko is going to look ordinary. It depends a lot on the bike because... I think Pedro Acosta is the most accomplished rider if he wins the World Championship in Moto2 this year. If he wins the championship, he's the most accomplished rider statistically since Danny Pedrosa, who entered MotoGP. He's more accomplished than Fabio, more than Peco, like everybody on the MotoGP grid. Nobody has, like, even Marc Marquez. 
Mark Marcus didn't win his rookie season in Moto 3. He won, like, he needed, what, uh, five seasons? Or three years. Not five. Three years, that's right. Um, he needed three years. He wasn't competitive in his rookie season. Pedro was. Pedro was competitive in his Moto 2 season and is um, in his rookie Moto 2 season and is now on track to win the Moto 2 World Championship because he's clearly better than everybody else. And if Pedro enters, he will be the most accomplished rider since Danny Pedrosa, who obviously won two, 250 titles and won one hundred twenty-five uh, CC title in the span of three years. And that's just more than two titles. So Danny Pedrosa would be statistically more accomplished, but more accomplished than Casey Stoner, more accomplished than uh, Jorge Lorenzo, even more accomplished than Valentino Rossi and Marc Marquez. Like statistically, Pedro Acosta is uh, the real deal. And um, to compare Peku to him is then again like comparing somebody to Mark Marcus because I think Pedro Acosta is on that level from from a talent perspective. Okay. And um, it will depend a lot on what KTM does. If Pedro goes to KTM, and apparently it's still up for speculation if he goes to uh, Tech 3 or the factory team, because or, or a third team, <laughs> or a third team run by uh, a certain Finnish uh, man called Akiyo. Yeah, but KTM has got uh, like two. Like I want to say, uh, like a, like a boxing analogy, when you get knocked down two times and then you have like a third uh, time until you get technically KO'd. Um, like KTM has gotten uh, two shots which put them down. Like they wanted to have a, a third team by Dorna. Dorna said no. They wanted to uh, get the LCR team and Lucio Cecchinello said no. Which baffled so, me, by the way. He has a contract <laughs> with Honda, I believe. So Yeah, he does, but... What do you I mean, want to do if Marc Marcus can get out of a contract? Lucio Cecchinello can't. This is true, but like even if Lucio had said, okay, I'll see you at 2024, I'll come with you in 2025. But no, he signed an extension. That's what baffled me. I mean, he's been with Honda since forever. I mean, the first yeah. time I personally remember LCR Honda was in 2006 with Andrea Dovizioso on it. Then he had, uh, no, in 2009 with Andrea, I'm sorry. But he had Casey Stoner in 2006. Yeah, That's Stoner in the 250s yeah. in 06. And I'm Randy sorry. de Punier, I believe, was his teammate. No, LCR back then was a one-person team. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure. And Casey Stoner was at LCR Honda as yeah, the right about that. sole rider in 2006, I believe. Carrera Sunglasses was the sponsor, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know. Oh, maybe milk. And then 2007, he went to Ducati. And then in 2008, I believe, Andrea Dovizioso, that's the year, uh, went to LCR Honda. So, like, he has a history with Honda, and I appreciate his loyalty. Oh, no, no, Dovi was Repsol. Oh, wait, no, no. No, not as a rookie. Not, not Scott. Scott Honda. Not LCR. Scott Honda. Scott Honda. It was Scott Honda? Scott Honda, which was his 250 team. I'll Google it. Fuck yeah, it. Yeah, Scott Honda. Um, and then in 09, no, 08, yeah. And then I think Gabo Talmashi was his teammate for half a season, if I'm, my memory serves. I don't know. LCR. I'm sure it was Scott, but, you know, I, I, in I, I, I think looking idiot. In 2006, um, LCR 
went into the MotoGP class. And before that, they were active in the 125 and 250 championship. Yes. Dovi then came up in 08 with Scott Honda. 07, Scott Honda? 08? Oh, one of them. I don't know. I might have myself as an idiot here, but it was over like 15 years ago. Cut me some slack. I mean, (laughs) Andrea Dovizioso battled Jorge Lorenzo in the 250s, so he must have um, been in the 250s in 2006 and 2007. Yes. And then he went to uh, MotoGP in 2008 alongside with Jorge Lorenzo. Yes, to Scott Honda. Tamashi was his teammate for half a season. I do remember that. But I don't remember and he went to which Repsol in team. 09, one Donington. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, JRI Team Scott yeah. on a Honda. Yeah, I did think so. Yeah, it was a beautiful looking bike if I remember it. It was grey. Yeah, and I thought it was LCR Honda. No, no, that's why. It, yeah, like that's why I was thinking was RDP was on the LCR in a week then under the Playboy colors. If yeah, right. I think the legendary, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, the legendary Playboy. Uh, yeah. Um, no, but back to the point. I mean, Luci Cecchinello has such a rich history with Honda. And I mean, yeah. Honda treated him well, I suppose. So maybe he has some kind of personal relationship over the years. Like, you know, when business partners grow into friends, then Very possible, maybe yeah. he uh, wants to stay with Honda because Honda has been good to him over the last 15 years. It could be a loyalty thing. Like quite simply, yeah. it just could be a loyalty thing. But and he if you're was... talking from a sporting perspective. Of course. Yeah. If, like, if you're talking from a sporting, it's, like, it's a fine balance. If you're talking from a sporting perspective, everybody should have uh, signed with Ducati uh, three years ago. So. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Didn't it? I mean. But like if, you, if you've got a, a good KTM offer on the table and you still stay with Honda and extend it, that, that Honda must be offering something. That's what I'm, what I'm going to say. Uh, I mean, you don't know how the offer was. You just know that there was an offer, but you don't know what was in the contract. So maybe Honda offered him better conditions than KTM. Totally possible. Yeah. Yeah. I'd go with that. Um, I would like to know exactly what the details of that are because it must have been a hell of an offer for you to say, I don't want that performing KTM. I want this underperforming Honda. And I want to have my riders in the hospital. Yeah, like, you know, I took so much stick the other week because I posted about Juan Mir and I, I was saying, why the hell would anyone want to get on a honda when the bike is actively trying to kill you because that's what it's trying to do like you can call me dramatic but if the bike is actively trying to hurt you at speeds that are mind-bendingly fast at some point it's going to end in tears it's that simple I mean, the whole killing thing is a difficult topic, and I don't think we should over-exaggerate on this topic. No. So I prefer to say a bike which is uh, trying to injure you. But Joan Mir wanted to stay on a Suzuki, let's be clear. Oh, absolutely. He never wanted to go to Honda. (laughs) 
I mean, he never wanted to go to Honda. And I thought about this uh, recently. What if Suzuki left at the exact right time? They left on top. What if Suzuki anticipated that they don't want to compete with the arrow uh, of Ducati, KTM and uh, all of the budget they have? What if they anticipated that the whole electronic thing isn't uh, working out for them and saw what was coming where Honda and Yamaha are right now and said, nope, not with us and left at the exact right moment because everybody called them stupid back then because they won the last race they ever attended in. But thinking about it, how competitive would Suzuki be in 2023 because everybody like except Yamaha and Honda, but everybody made a step. KTM made a huge step. Even Ducati made a big step. And what yeah. if Suzuki said, fuck this? No. I I would back your point if it wasn't for the small thing of them being fined 100 million euros for their engine bypasses on their cars. That played the massive part. I, I think it was... It's a good excuse, shall we say, for them to pull out at the right time. But I do absolutely believe Suzuki would have been here in this season and Rins and Mia would be up there because they were those bikes were made for those two riders. Like both yes. of them were amazing on them. If Suzuki were here, I don't think you know, I think it'd be a, t- a, f- a four and a two group, shall we say, where Suzuki would be in the top group. Yamaha and Honda would be left behind. But that the the fact that they pulled out hurt MotoGP. Yes. First and foremost. 100% agree. Because we not only did we lose the competitiveness, but we also had to house riders elsewhere who were, you know, we had to house a world champion on a bike that he does not like and cannot ride. You know, that hurts MotoGP in more ways than one. So to get that all because your cars have cheated the emissions tests. Life ain't fair, <laughs> quite simply. Life ain't fair, but they brought it on themselves and now they have to they have to live with the consequences. I just checked uh, Suzuki's revenue because you talked about um, talked about $100 million uh, fine and they had a net income of 160.3 billion Japanese yen. I don't know what this is in dollar. I would have to. Uh, I would have to. Uh, I, I know it's enough to them, put it that way. Yeah, and they had a revenue of 3.5 trillion Japanese yen. That's I mean, I don't. Know. I know it's yen, but yes. that's still big numbers. I don't know yen into like. Like I know that the bypass, the cheap bypass, was enough to hurt them. That they ha- like, there's a reason they've shut down all their racing efforts. Like okay. even the the factory Suzuki in the endurance is not a factory Suzuki. It's a Yoshimura effort. Like they they've basically pulled out of everything, and you know, they had a, a revenue of basically one billion euros. Oh. Yes, and like I think they. I think it blunted them enough that they pulled out, you know? It was one of yeah. those, like... I, mean, I don't know. Could be, but also could not be. I mean... Yeah. I, I think it, because... it, it was a good excuse, like, to to pull out then. 
Yeah. You know, if if, if they were like we, we know Suzuki have form for it, that's the worst thing. They've already done it once, and then they go and do it again. But the thing is, they had a contract with Dorna until two thousand twenty-six, and Dorna was stupid enough to let them go for a small fine. I mean, Suzuki had to pay Dorna a little bit of money, but mm. not too much. And like, then Dorna let them go because there are such greedy bastards at Dorna. Well, that's the thing. It's, it's, um, it didn't benefit Dorna to keep them if they weren't going to put money in. And that's the thing. Just, why? I mean, if I was Dorna, I would have said, no, you signed a contract. Fuck you. Find, uh, find I, a solution to your problem. Because I, agree there. I, I would gamble that Suzuki won't put a bike on there where they're putting zero money in because it would have been three years or like four years, 23, 24, 25, 26, four years of incredibly bad advertising and marketing for your brand on the biggest stage possible. So I would take the gamble that Suzuki would still make a competitive bike because they wouldn't want to look stupid. And I would set an example to every manufacturer on the grid that you can't play with us if you have a contract. While I agree, I, I absolutely agree with you. I do think Suzuki would have actually gone and not developed it. Kawasaki did it. Their problem. I yeah, don't, like the, if I was Dorna, I don't care. But you do care because then one of your manufacturers is struggling and suddenly everybody's saying, oh, why is Suzuki struggling? When the reality is they're not pouring anything in, but then you come under criticism because suddenly your rules are not benefiting one squad. I don't think that Donna would have been uh, criticized if Suzuki isn't performing well. I think that Suzuki would have been criticized. And I think, like, imagine this. Imagine we had 24 bikes on the grid with a Suzuki where zero Japanese yen are invested in. Then we still had a Suzuki on the grid with 24 riders, which is more beneficial to Dorna. Then, like, the worst case scenario is that we have position 23 and 24 Suzuki. Now we don't have even a position 24 and 23. This is true. So I don't think that there's a, a scenario with Suzuki on the grid which is worse than without Suzuki. But then you say that, but then, like, everybody's screaming for concessions for Honda and Yamaha. Give them concessions. If they don't uh, invest anything in it, they won't uh, reap any rewards of concessions. I, as Dorna, I, as Dorna, wouldn't have cared less if Suzuki is good enough. I would have cared that I have 24 bikes on the grid, I have another manufacturer, and I would have cared that people realize you can't play around when you have a contract. But contracts don't mean anything in the MotoGP world. That's the worst thing of it. Yeah, that, that's that's my point. But that's my <laughs> yeah, point. No, I, I completely if, agree with what you're saying. If you like, treat contracts like they do, of course contracts aren't worth anything. But if you held somebody to a contract and say, if you want to get out of this country, you have to go to an international court and make me, then okay, sure. The only thing I can think is that there's some kind of deal cut for later down the line. Suzuki return perhaps and you know if they say oh well fine you can get out of this now the end of 2026 you come back whatever the rule set is you bring four bikes this is non-negotiable then it sort of makes sense but whether that do happened, you but do you think Suzuki signed a contract with this where they're being held accountable four years down the line possibly just because it's it's a very easy 
thing to get out of, you know, like considering the what it did to the MotoGP world. They got out of it quite easily. So I think there must be some kind of deal cut somewhere down the line, you know? I never thought about this, but still I would have not done it because as Dorna, it's important to me what's happening with MotoGP now than five years down the line. This is true, but if you future plan, you know, and you know that Suzuki are going to be coming back and you can mm. offer all the other manufacturers that guarantee as well, and then they sign the extension, suddenly the ball is rolling, you know? Again, politics. <laughs> I I think this is like a little bit of an over-analysis. Very possible. Where there is nothing to analyze. I think Suzuki wanted like, to you know, go out for one reason or another. Yeah, like, honestly, very possible. I'm not saying that is the case. Absolutely not. But I'm just trying to reason why they got out of it so easily. You know, they, 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 they it just... It must be a case of you scratch my back, I scratch yours somewhere along the line. Like, I, I don't only... know exactly what... Like, it might not be that, but, like, Suzuki definitely offered Dorna something they wanted in order for them to get it out. Money. They offered him money, and they had to pay uh, pay some kind of a bailout fine and uh, got out of this contract. It's quite it's, simple. It's and I think incredibly cheap, you know? Yes, and, but Donna is incredibly cheap. Look at their sponsorships. Look at the way they introduce sprint racing. Look at their way how they introduce staff members. Like, all the nepotism going on there. <laughs> Donna is cheap. I mean, so I had to break it to you. <laughs> no, but you are right. Wait, you are right. So, the way yeah. they are treating journalists, uh, like the sprint press conference, everybody who hasn't seen it should find a way to find it because it has been a shit show from top to bottom where journalists ask serious questions and like the Dorna CEO, the FIM CEO and uh, whatever Harvey Porsche's role is, I think he's Urta president, I don't remember, yep. um, are basically making such a fool out of those journalists in a bad way. They're making like a fool of the, out of themselves as well. But like, try to act like the journalist with the serious question is stupid. Like, eighty-year-old uh, Camilo Espeleta telling a journalist that MotoGP riders aren't at the limit yet, and they're far off them. What the fuck? I mean, yeah. So Dorna is cheap, yes. And if I was Dorna, the only way I would have let Suzuki out of this contract is if they would convince either Kawasaki or BMW to take over their spot. Well, that's it. See. That was offered to BMW. Yes, and BMW said no because of uh, the money. And I totally understand it, but that's like a correct way of approaching things and saying, okay, I don't even want to bother with it because I don't want to invest the money. Then introducing uh, yourself to the MotoGP world like in 2014 and then nine years later, not even 10 years, I mean, believe it, um, to say, okay, we have a contract, but CEO wouldn't want to be here. like wild absolutely wild i i for one i actually don't see why bmw didn't take it because they had a perfect yeah perfect perfect uh perfect base to build your model they had the bike that had won the three of the last four races of the season would no two of the last uh three whatever it was and you know would absolutely have been competitive now yeah, of course. It, it had still been developed, remember, throughout the 2022 season. They brought aero updates and stuff. You know, I, I absolutely think that BMW could have 
played a blinder here. I think they missed a real opportunity yes. to get their name into the MotoGP world, learn from that bike in order to develop their own. And then before you know it, a, a company the size of BMW, like they wouldn't they wouldn't be un- underneath for long. Not like Superman. Im- imagine if BMW came to Dorna and Suzuki and said, we will take it, but only under one condition. We will get concessions. Well, that they would have had to have get gotten concessions. Like that is that is yeah, I I agree with that one hundred percent. Which because they have been, to know everything, they have to learn everything, yeah. and but they're starting with a race winning bike. So yeah, you, that's, imagine that's you have a Suzuki where you add on concessions and then have the development knowledge, like the aero knowledge of BMW. BMW is such a huge company; they have all the money in the world. If they wanted to do it, they would have done it probably better than Ducati, I believe. But BMW is a car company and there will ever be a car company. BMW is not a motorcycle company and especially BMW isn't a superbike motorcycle company. They're building their GS models, they're having their street naked bikes and they're doing fine with it, but it's just a small portion of the BMW brand. The BMW identity is to build cars which are race ready. Yeah. You know, like the BMW 3 Series. You can buy it and go to a track and you're doing good. And then you can add on everything. And then you all of a sudden have a real track day car. But BMW isn't the type of company to go into Formula 1 or to go into MotoGP. I mean, it even surprised me that they go into the LMP1 shit uh, now. But um, oh, just car, by the way. Yes. But BMW is a car company that will have a... Uh, will ever be a car company and i think bmw has bigger problems than MotoGP at the moment because they're getting everything out of MotoGP they want they even get uh, their cars on track during live practice sessions so uh that, that again better... that why i don't, i thought they would at least consider it because they already have the presence yes but but they, they like you are right they didn't need it and but i i personally think they did miss a trick because if they wanted to go to MotoGP, yes, they missed it. But the way I think BMW works is they yeah, are no, you're focusing totally right. They have no need cars. for MotoGP. That's the that's they the have, of it. They have the presence in MotoGP with the sponsorship, the safety car, and the VIP car. They even uh, get the BMW like on the Moto3 practice track in Le Mans. So. I mean, they get oh. all of it, all of it from uh, MotoGP uh, that they need, and not more. I'm even surprised that they do World Superbike because it's just uh, very, very embarrassing for them. And they go in big with Superbike all of a sudden, yeah. which that surprised me in a way because yeah. I did not expect that level of investment of what they are going to be paying Top Rock. Yeah, you know, seven figures a year for Top Rock. And he gets to keep his Red Bull sponsorship despite Rocket signing their contract. It's... I don't even know what Rocket is. This is an energy, energy Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, but guess like, who's going? <laughs> to be a little bit uh, sarcastic, uh, the Turkish market is a big market for the BMW 3 Series. So uh, they're making uh, all the right moves. And, oh, yeah. Uh, well, I totally get that. You know, marketability, speed. Yeah, nice dude as well, Top Rack. Like, I I think it's a good thing, and I I do think he will end up winning the title on that BM. And have you have you ever walked into a World Superbike paddock and see all those European 
Turkish fans, like the ones who emigrated from Turkey, like into Germany, into France or Netherlands or Czech Republic. I mean, I've been to uh, Assen and I've been to Most. And both paddocks were filled with Turkish fans. Like Donington the uh, same? Donington the same, apparently, uh, if you say so. So you have mm -hmm. all those fans who uh, who are leasing a BMW with their 16 cousins to uh, pick up some chicks. And then you put Toprock into the mix, so all of them will buy a BMW. It's quite simple. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's the thing. Like, I was, I was saying to my friends the other day that um, when I went on holiday to Turkey, 2017, I think it was, you couldn't go around a corner without seeing Keenan Sofuoglu's face, whether yeah, it was on a big. poster, whether it was on a Red Bull can, whether it was, you know, I even saw Keenan's face painted on the bonnet of a larder. Like, he rushed on. And I, now I assume it's Toprak because obviously he wasn't yeah. quite there in 2017. But he is very close. Sofoglu is very close with Erdogan, so he's into politics now. I mean, yes, yeah, I. Uh, that I, certainly I'm not touching that him. one with the barge pole, but yeah, I'm just I'm just stating what I saw, and I'm honestly like I I couldn't believe it because I'm it was every street like not even kidding every single street, and I was just like. I could I couldn't wrap my head around it at first because I was like I knew he was big in Turkey, but the sheer levels of big. But does Turkey have any international superstars like real Turkish, for example, football players? Or I I I don't want to be disrespectful, but I can't recall anything. I mean, I know a couple of German uh, players who are like from Turkey, but are playing for the German national team. Yeah. And um, I don't know, like the Turkish uh, football team isn't particularly successful. Uh, yeah, like, not, like I can't think of a Turkish sports person who is at the top of their game. Yeah. Apart from Toprak. Yeah. So, I mean, it would only make sense that this is, and they're a very pride uh, couple of people. So, yes. But like proud couple of people honestly i just that the sheer level of it just blew my mind like because you know i i went out there expecting to see you know software glue about but my god like it it's the equivalent of like the british fans having scott redding on every single street do you they know? i wish they did <laughs> no <laughs> i was i was wondering because i thought what uh did scott redding ever do except uh buying her his girlfriend uh instagram followers Nope, not touching that one. Nope, nope, <laughs> nope, nope, nope. I could, I could go on for hours about that, so I ain't touching that one. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, I saw her in Most, and I was uh, thinking about it, which was quite hilarious. Yeah, I, uh, I saw her at Donington last year, and she was on the phone, and she was just tearing into somebody over the phone, like, like tearing into this poor person on the other end of the phone, right? And her voice just carried as well. And I was just like, wow. Wow. <laughs> it was honestly, like, I didn't even know who was on the other end of the phone and I felt bad for him. <laughs> it was terrible. Yeah, probably uh, that's the time where she saw my Instagram uh, story about her. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> oh, honestly, it was, it was The funny cringe. thing. The funny thing was when she uh, celebrated her 1 million followers, um, I put it like into my story and said like, hey, congratulations for buying your 1 million follower or something like this. Or Scott Redding spending his BMW money on buying his uh, <laughs> wife, yeah. I believe they're, they're married, right? 
Yeah, they are now yeah, married. His his wife uh, Instagram and I didn't even tag her. Nothing. But on Instagram, you get this um, this little icon where you see who reposted your posts, right? So she saw it for one reason or another and got into an argument with me where I'm like, bitch, I'm not I stupid. I, uh, I remember it. I'm not stupid. I can tell that you have bought your followers. I mean, yeah. I have, like right now, I have 18.7K, I believe. Nice. And I... I have a pretty, not trying to brag, but I have a pretty big engagement when I compare it to other Instagram. I, I get quite a lot of likes, quite a lot of comments uh, for the number of followers I have, and I'm very, very thankful for it. And uh, I was comparing this to hers, and you, she, uh, she, uh, she deactivated her like count, but that doesn't uh, prevent you from going inside her like count where you can see... Um, where you can see who liked the post. Like when you when you click on it, then you can scroll through who liked it. It was like 150 people or whatsoever. Yeah. Well, and I, I, if I remember... I even, I even counted it, all, it once. I, I remember you, were, like when, when it happened, and I remember, I can't remember who it was, but someone did like their, you know, like a follow account yeah, yeah. on her thingy. And one month she just went, whoosh, up yes. like 500,000 followers. And... That ain't organic. <laughs> Sorry, but no. But yeah, you know, if if that's what makes her happy, then you know, good for you, Scott. Good husband. In the thing is, now we're 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 going balls deep into it, but I don't care. The thing is, I don't think it makes her happy. <laughs> I think <laughs> okay, a person. I think a hypothetical person who buys Instagram followers is very desperate for attention and very unhappy with themselves and trying to get validation from the outside. But she knows it's not the validation she wants because she bought it. She has to know. And that, I believe, will eat her up from the inside, you know? <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> Whoa, now, chief. <laughs> Yeah, but she's so concerned about what people think about her that she's willing to buy her Instagram. I mean, I have a private profile. I have like 115 people who follow me. I don't want people to see what I'm posting on Instagram. And uh, I don't care because I have like my five real-life friends and I'm happy with it. I have a yeah. beautiful girlfriend. I have a wonderful dog. I have two uh, crazy cats who, uh, who shit not into the litter box from the cats. <laughs> Of course, <laughs> yeah. Typical so, cat uh, behavior. I mean, I'm. I have. I have a good family. I have a good relationship with my parents. I have a good relationship with my friends. I'm happy. I don't need to brag about my life. I don't need to get validation from people I don't even know. And I think your your uh, psyche has to be kind of fucked up in a way when you need this validation. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm serious. <laughs> Oh, bloody hell. Yeah, but Ooh. if you need this validation from people uh, you don't even know and then try to fake it shows to me that a person who would do this is incredibly insecure and incredibly concerned about what the outside world thinks about her, which results in not like a big amount of confidence. So why the fuck do you care how many Instagram followers do you have? There are like three things that count. Do you have a good relationship to your family? 
do you have a good uh, relationship to uh to like your boyfriend your girlfriend your husband your wife whatsoever do you have somebody you're in love with a good partner who makes your life better and do you have a good relationship to your friends like from a personal perspective and then of course do you have a home do you have enough money so you can buy food and not be uh, worried about what's going to uh, hold you tomorrow and then you're quite happy for life like You don't need a million Instagram followers just because some Instagram bitch who photoshops her uh, her photos has it doesn't mean you need it. <laughs> well, I didn't say it, but I'm not disagreeing. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, yeah, no, like I, I, I mean, we could get into a massive rabbit hole about buying followers, couldn't we? Because like even motorbike pages do it, but it's like, yeah. You know, but that's the route you want to go. Fine. You know, use your disposable income that way. I'd rather use it on something that actually makes me happy. Yeah. I mean, uh, during my teen ages, uh, I went to a stage as well where I was worried about oh, my, how many people are liking my uh, liking my photos. How do I like this Instagram hashtag like for like follow for follow all of this? But then, as I went into like my late teens, I would say. Like whatever, yeah. Nineteen, like, like, I, I don't get eighteen, seventeen, whatsoever. I realize, hey, nobody gives a shit. Nobody cares if you meet a girl and uh, she asks, hey, what's your Instagram? Because I want to send you memes. And then half of the girls are turned off if you have like a big Instagram account because they think you're some kind of a narcissistic uh, bitch. And then true. I mean, I've, but I've talked the other to girls that, about this. Yeah, is, I've um, talked to girls about this. If you meet someone, and, you know, the first thing you do is whip out your phone and show, oh, I got 80,000 Instagram followers. Yeah. I'm just going to look a cock. <laughs> also, like, if you uh, meet a girl and she has, like, 50,000 Instagram followers, you know there are 50,000 horny dudes who try to lay your girlfriend. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's the truth. <laughs> oh, what the fuck? Oh, fucking hell. Yeah. I mean, if you, it is. If, you have a, if you have, like, a good content for for example i want to give a shout out to emma oakley she's doing uh, motorcycle art she has yeah. a beautiful account and yeah. i wish her all the success in the world i have a painting uh in my living room the next room she drew for me which uh every time i look at it i get through the emotions of uh, the late 2021 season because um i went to misano with my mom because we wanted to see um Vala's last home race it was like a big thing I always wanted to do and I always wanted to go to Mugello, but then COVID came. And so then the opportunity, the second Misano GP, we thought, okay, fuck it, we will do it. Then we did it. Uh, I had a very, very beautiful week with my mom in Tavul. Yeah, we went to Coreano where Marco Simicelli is from. And co coincidentally, it was his 10-year uh, death anniversary. And uh, then there was like uh, the thing at the church. How, how do you say in English? Like a service, like no, a sermon no. in the church. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I, but I remember like every Sunday, every Sunday in church, you have the. I'm not actually a church goer, but I I know what you mean. Oh, wait, I will Google it. Fuck it. Yeah, I uh, I remember something about that in the on the ten year anniversary. So yeah, we basically went to church there, like it's called a service, like a church service. Yeah. Like a <laughs> I was right then. 
Yeah. So we uh, went to the church in Korea, even though I'm not a pretty religious uh, person. It was nice. And the whole thing was in Italian. I didn't understand a word. But um, yeah, it was nice to do. And then at the memorial, they were um, bursting the flames out of the exhaust. And everybody who goes to Italy should go there because it's just beautiful. It's humbling. And the museum, I went there. So this whole thing. And then I went with my girlfriend to Portimao and Valencia. And in um, in Portimao, Pedro won the World Championship, thanks to Aaron Binder. And um, in Valencia, uh, Remy won the World Championship. And back then, I uh, already met Remy, and um, he was, like, my girlfriend and I met him in Austria, and he was super nice to us, and he's such a great person. I really wanted him to win this. I was very invested. Then he won the thing. It was Valis' last uh, GP, because... All my life, I don't remember a day where Valentino Rossi haven't raced motorcycles up until this day. And it's just such a huge part of me. I mean, I'm doing this right now basically because of him. And um, okay. like to have all of these uh, beautiful like four weeks, whatever it was, condensed into one photo, which is so brilliantly drawn by Emma. And um, we we had a Zoom call where we talked about it and I basically made a very, very bad Photoshop sketch on what I wanted. And she made this beautiful thing about it. She was so cooperative and even like with little adjustments, for example, there was this stupid phantom uh, advertisement of this stupid uh, crypto uh, okay. thing. And I didn't even want to what it on there because I thought, okay, they will be uh, broke in three years and like be bankrupt and nobody will talk about it. So, and I told her about this. Hey, can you uh, leave this one out? Can you put this one in and all of this? And she made a very, very beautiful painting. And it's in my living room now. So I would rather spend money on this than buying fucking Instagram followers. Oh, this absolutely. makes me so happy. And I wish her all the success in the world. But what the fuck do I need some blonde bitch showing her ass on my Instagram feed? Yeah, exactly. I also and follow why, her, by the way. And, and why, yeah, I agree with why do you said. want why do you want your girlfriend to be this one? Like, do you think it's a good thing if uh, if all the men in the world are sliding into her DMs and like offering her trips to Dubai and do whatever? Yeah, so, like, you know, I've got to be honest. I'm I'm quite a secure person in myself. You know what I mean? Like, like I I'm probably some would say too cocky but it's like i i genuinely couldn't give two shits about instagram following like it's nice to have like what i do love about my page is that i get so many messages every single day from like-minded people wanting weirdly wanting my opinion on things you know like some kind of fucking influencer like bro i ain't it but i but i appreciate the fact that you know you come to me and you respect my opinion enough. Absolutely. But to consider me an influencer is a bit fucking weird. But I love the fact that I have the ability to do it while separating my personal life. That's the thing. Like, I I absolutely love seeing my Instagram DMs light up with people asking me questions, you know, wanting my opinion on certain topics, certain things. It's fucking amazing. But like I've had also on the flip side of that, I've had people find my personal Instagram and message me on there. I haven't. I'm very thankful about it, and I haven't. Well, it's not many, but some have. So if you're one of those and you're listening to this, there's a reason I didn't reply to you on the personal. <laughs> Keep it separate. But I absolutely love getting messages from people on the page wanting to discuss MotoGP. Now, this sport we all love. It's it's just 
that's brilliant. That yeah. to me is worth a lot more than having the followers. And the beautiful thing is you get like validation for your work. Like whatever this work may be, if you're an artist, if you make fucking memes, or if you have like a news page like you do. And you have a very unique page where you go into topics nobody else does. And it's your thing, but it's not you. It's your expression of what you think about MotoGP. And to have validation in this one is like a validation into your work, into your artistic uh, style or whatsoever. I mean, when you're a photograph on how you... Uh, pick certain photos. I don't know how this works. So um, to get validation for your work is a much more beautiful thing than getting validation for your ass. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I just, I think to myself, like, okay, I don't, you know, I, I'm quite small in terms of Instagram. I, I feel like 3,000, 4,000 followers. Over on Facebook, I'm much bigger. I've got, I'm closing on 30,000 now. Um. And I'm getting like, literally, my my phone doesn't stop. It kills my battery. <laughs> but I'm like, every day I look at it. Like it, it sounds really cheesy, but like I'm really thankful for it because I'm I'm posting something that people are engaging with and making you think. Oh, is this the point of view, or is that the point of view? And like, if it's a news thing, I'm like, oh, oh, cool. You know, people are happy about this or sad about this. You know, it it, it goes through all the range of emotions. It's great. And it's all yeah. just because we all love this one sport. Yeah. So that for me is far more fulfilling than sitting there looking at your follow account. Yeah. And especially what's nice is if uh, if people you adore, like MotoGP riders, for example. Mm. I mean, you you and they engage with you and say, "Hey, this was super funny," or yeah, "I'm laughing." Yeah. Laugh or whatever you know this is uh like for me a very very important thing and i like it a lot mm. and also uh to the point of your phone blowing up i have my notifications for instagram uh off i have like on the iphone you can set a timer and i have like one hour timer for instagram so i try to just live 23 hours of my uh day normally and then post like a meme and engage with people and uh, then it's all good. But I don't want to be bad MotoGP memes. I want to be me and then have like a page, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. Like, like the only reason I don't set myself a timer is because I might not want to do it on that particular time on that day. Like I, I, the other week, you know, in the six-week break, I didn't even go on my Instagram for like four or five days. And I had people messaging me asking me, was I okay? Like... You know, like people I've never met who the only thing I bring to their life is, you know, bike things. And they ask asking, am I okay? Because I haven't posted in a while. Like it genuinely is touching. Like, you know, it, it genuinely is like, wow, you know, thank you very much. It's, it's just, it blows my mind sometimes when you actually yeah. stop and think. Like to go down the rabbit hole of it, how mad is the internet? Yeah, of course. I mean, <laughs> you know it's I mean? Like that you're able to do this shit and reach so many people across the globe through fucking Wi-Fi. It's just yeah, it's mental. And yeah, but I think thankful. Like, for example, it's in my case. I like to do a lot of entertaining, funny stuff, and not taking things seriously. 
but I don't want to take this off because there's much more to me as a person. You know, yeah. I, for example, in my daily life, I, yes, I make jokes. Yes. I have some funny conversations. Yes. I like to make people laugh, but there are also like serious uh, things I would like to discuss and, um, things you wouldn't necessarily, uh, think about somebody who runs a meme page. So like, the different aspects to my personality. And I like that there's like one part of it, but I don't want to take this part and make it my whole person. Yes. You know, and just for example, like when I do my podcast, I, yes, here and there, there's a joke, but in general, it's like serious talk about MotoGP because I like it. And it's not, and I mean, uh, there are so many compliments I've gotten from people inside the paddock. If it's writers or if it's just journalists or people who work in a team who say, Basically, what you're saying, you're correct. So that doesn't mean that I know everything, but genuinely, it gives me a compliment because it tells me, hey, you know what you're talking about. And what you observe, you make the connections to what actually is happening. And to say you're just a meme page, I mean, would be a little bit, yeah, yeah. would be a little bit less for me, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. Well, it's it's in... a part of you, but it's not all of you. Yeah, of course. It's yeah. the same as me. Like, and... You know, like, if I, like, I'm a single man. You know, if, if I meet a girl, I'm not telling her, like, that's not the first thing I introduce. You know what I mean? No. I introduce who I am, not, oh, look at me, I run a bike page. <laughs> like, you know, it's just, it's not thing. Like, I, I yeah. absolutely could not give two shits if you know I grow a fucking page or not. Yeah. It's that simple. And... I mean, with my girlfriend, I even take a step back on my meme stuff to spend time with her. I mean, for example, on right. Fridays, on yeah, on Fridays, I rarely watch uh, practice because I'd rather I rather spend time with her and doing stuff, you know. That's his or, again. <laughs> I mean, there are so many weekends. I've told you that my girlfriend uh, is like. I don't know how to call it. I would call it like a professional athlete on a horse, like those eventing. Yeah, I know uh, what you mean. The three-day eventing, she does this. And she's quite good at it. And when there's a competition, I go with her because I want to support her. And then then there's a time slot where I'll watch MotoGP on my phone, but I'm not staying at home to watch the race and uh, let her do the stuff. And <laughs> I was... <laughs> in a funny way mad at her because uh, there was this five week summer break and there weren't, wasn't any competition at all. And then Typical. for the fucking one weekend where there's Silverstone, <laughs> she has a competition. So yeah, Silverstone, for example, yeah. I um, partly watched it uh, at the competition, partly watched it at home because due to the uh, time difference, it um, worked out quite well. But like most weekends I get up at 5 a.m. in the morning to uh, go to the stupid stable and uh, load, the ho load the horses onto the truck and then drive somewhere, uh, watch her ride, and then drive home. I'm completely exhausted, but I like to do it because I like to support yeah. her. And this is well, so much it, then, isn't it? more important to me than uh, watching qualifying at home, you know? Mm. Well, that's it. Like, like I, I, I do watch practice, but it's normally it's, I work from home. Like my day job, I work from home. So it's perfect. I just chuck practice on in the background. Job done, you know? But like Saturdays, if I'm with the kids, I don't watch. Some yeah. days I will watch the racing, but luckily they love it as well. So, you know, we're, That's good. like if we're, you know, if it's the morning, like Moto3 for whatever time slot it is, like we'll have breakfast in bed. We'll all have a snuggle up in bed and we'll watch Moto3. 
Like, yeah. My daughter loves it because Anna Carrasco's in it. You know, it's Anna. And then I fucking hate Anna Carrasco. Well, she loves it because it's a girl racer. You know. Yeah, but to me, Maria Herrera is such a better option. It is yes, but. Again, Why don't you put Maria on it? It was so easy. Because 500,000 euros, but that's by the by. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then, that's the dark side of MotoGP again. Yeah, and, uh, and Bowie, you know, Jose Bowie is a, a greedy motherfucker, but, you know, yeah. again, that's by the by. But the fact that she is in the paddock and my daughter watches because she wants to see Anna, that in itself almost makes it worth it to me. Like, I mean, I can totally understand that. I mean, it's it's difficult from my perspective as a man, but I've heard from uh, a lot of women that it's important to have women in certain positions that young girls can look up to. And I totally subscribe to this idea. I just don't subscribe to Anna Carrasco. Yeah, it's I, that I, simple. I, I, I mean, agree put with Ma- you in that. Put Maria Herrera in it. Or like... Uh, Kayla Harrison, I believe, is her name from America. Yakov, yeah. Fly- she is flying. But no, Kayla Harrison is somewhere else. Who the fuck is Kayla Harrison? Not she- oh yeah, she's an MMA fighter. Yeah. <laughs> close <laughs> enough. Close enough. No, I'm, no. I agree What's with her you. name from America? Kayla Yakov. Yeah, Kayla Yakov. Yeah. Find a goddamn solution to put her in some junior series in Europe if she wants to. And like because apparently she has some serious talent. She's yeah, fast. she does. But find a way and not waste her time. Waste her time on a stock bike where you then have to reintroduce her to Moto Two, where she gets smoked by Spaniards who've been on a Moto Three since they're fucking twelve years old. Yeah, like I, I agree with you that Anna ain't the solution. But when her existence alone is going to influence some young girls, but then. Maybe Anna needs to be where she is to influence a girl who will be better. You know, I think it's a yes. it's a very but slow I think, process. The think the girl that is actually better we already have in Maria Herrera. I agree with you there too, but Maria is also not able to bring the funds. But again, I don't think Maria <laughs> would be closer to the points. Like she would, but I don't think she'd be a regular point scorer. I mean, there are two things. If you're Dorna and you want to introduce a women's world championship, might as well should uh, fund the more talented rider. I remember a race in 2014 where she beat Fabio Quateraro in the Spanish championship. She is not bad. She's fucking fast. But um, to have this excuse of she's not bringing the funds, I mean, goddamn, give her the funds. And yep. uh, if this, uh, the, th- the second thing, <laughs> is that um, I went to Jerez and in Jerez last year it was very very obvious how fucking bad she was because you see the top guys then there's a small gap then you see like the middle guys then there's a small gap and you see uh, the back markers then there's a huge gap and then you see Ana Carrasco yes I, like, that, that's I will, my problem I will say for Ana in the plus though she has somewhat closed that gap to the other riders, which, you know, a sort of kind of okay. With someone with her experience should be a lot higher than where she is. She was foremost. in Model 3 in 2013. Yes, you know, she, she knows the Moto 3 paddock. But she is slowly making her way there. But 
when is she going to plateau? That's the big question. You know, she she's caught to the back of the pack, you know, and that's an improvement. And I don't think you're able to knock an improvement. But where does, you know, you put someone else on that seat who comes from Chev Moto3, you know, a, a 17-year-old kid who's flying in Chev in Junior World Championship, she is going to output, like, Anna's going to be out in a year. It's that simple. Like, she's not doing the, the performance, but I yeah. don't think you can knock someone for working to improve and, and actually is improving every time, you know? The thing that bums me out that we started the podcast with uh, talking about Sean and Kelly. Mm. We talked a little bit about Remy and his MotoGP state. And there are a lot of young boys who are faster than Ana Carrasco and never got the chance to prove themselves into in MotoGP. And this one bums me out as well. I thought it was beautiful what they did in Aragon last year uh, with Maria Herrera and the whole women team. I think it's beautiful. And they should have not done it only as a um, as a wildcard, but do it like for a more extended period of time and uh, actively try to bring up female talent more than they're actually doing it. And even the thing with the uh, Women's World Championship, why the fuck do it have to be 600 stock bikes? Why? Why can't you put them on the Moto3? Yep. Put them on the Red Bull Rookies bike. They don't even have to be from 2020. They put them on a 2014 bike. Who cares? Just put them on GP bikes like they do with the Rookies or with the Junior GP stuff and develop the talent. And then if they're good, bring them into, uh, into Moto3. And um, yeah, like an all-women's team, I'm all for it. Totally behind the idea. I kind of wish there would be a better solution to the female thing, the female problem, if you would call it this way, than Ana Carrasco. Because in my opinion, we have a better solution. And the better solution is Maria Herrera. And if if it means to pay some uh, greedy bastard 500000 a year, Dorna should do it if Maria can't fund it themselves. That's my issue. Yeah. Not that there's a woman. I mean, yeah, who like, cares? We, what, I, what I think we should do is, oh, if we're striving for equality, then Anna should be treated equally. And I think it looks extremely stupid if you have somebody who has their like model uh, right like a girl and then she's uh, 50 seconds off the pace. That looks bad. Yeah, yeah. That that's not the most thought out thing, is it? I'm guilty of it as well, but it invites jokes. Yeah, it invites it really jokes does. so it does. like you know, it, it it's just oh, it's just not thought through is the best way you can put it. Yeah. Like and you can't you can't big yourself up while simultaneously failing. Yeah. But then and as I said earlier, is it failing if she's improve it so it's a, it's a tough one very tough one it, it worked when she was world champion in the ssp 300 class but it just don't work uh it doesn't work anymore yeah. and um like we talked a little bit about my girl and uh in the equestrian sports like the european championships where this weekend you see men and women competing at the same time and i think it's from a theoretical point of view it's not different if you have a horse underneath you or a bike it's yeah. like 
it's not like uh, like sprinting where men have a huge advantage uh, above women. It's yeah. not like this in eventing, and it's not like this in motorcycle racing, or not to the extent I would say. And um, it should be a way, um, like in a perfect world, where women can compete with men on a motorcycle. Why not? But it won't work if you don't have a good youth program to bring up to bring up uh, girls like a mm. female world championship is a great idea but do it on model three bikes yeah and the other thing is as well like statistically speaking it's going to be 95 percent boys who are racing bikes regardless yeah so the pool you're fighting in is so low to start with that you can't afford to make mistakes in recruiting those kids who are fast. Like what Angelus are doing, what Aurora Angelucci is doing at the minute in, in Chiv, bringing through a lot of young girls is brilliant. You know, maybe one of those is, you know, two of those make it, but that's still a bigger pool than we've had. And, you know, Angelus are at the forefront of this and they really need to be applauded for that because they are and actually making a difference at grassroots level you know on the ovales and chiv level it's that's how it should be done not throw in someone on a super sport 300 bike and expect them to be able to ride a motor three bike after don't work that's, that way absolutely that's not. the problem because if you have the women's world championship and let's say a girl wins it i mean somebody has to win it and you put them into gp they're going to look so bad because you can't put someone from a stock 600 on uh on not like a really stock but like a world super sport 600 mm. uh thing on a gp bike those are totally different worlds but if you could make the women's world championship like on a moto 3 bike for example or do it on like on a 600 honda moto 2 bike you you yeah. still have those use yeah. them literally and um make the uh, women's world championship on this one or maybe have two classes like a moto 3 and a moto 2 class and uh, then the winners should get into the GP period, but then they have already the experience of it. And while thinking about it, this brings me back to the whole point from the beginning. And I think that people like Sean Dylan Kelly or like in general, people who are coming from, uh, from America or from road racing uh, in, in the UK and want to get into, uh, into the GP pedal, the Spanish championship with the Moto2, what they're doing is an exceptional way to get used to it, but without having like the pressure of a world championship. So, um, but I've heard that the fundings in, uh, in the Spanish championship in Moto2 is horrible. You have to pay for everything yourself. But yep. if we could get a solution that uh, maybe Dorna or uh, an American racing team puts fundings into this one like Rocco Landers for example he's a very talented young kid but you can't uh, expect for uh, him to pay all of it by himself if you want to have an American racer in Moto2 or Moto GP down the road you should invest in it now yeah like well it's funny you should mention the Moto2 because um, I do actually know how much you need to pay to get into SAG in not even world championship in in European Moto2 Championship. And I will just say it's north of $200,000. I've heard 300000 the first so I know the exact amount, but I'm not saying because for obvious reasons. But uh, yeah, it's north of two hundred. And uh, We can play a little game. Is it north of uh, three hundred? No, it is not. It's is between it two hundred and three hundred. Let's say that. 
250? Yeah, between 200 and 250, and that's all I'm giving you. 275? No, lower. <laughs> it's between <laughs> 200,000 and 250,000 euros per year. And okay. that does not even include crash damage. Oh. Just for a European Championship Moto 2 seat. Not a World Championship, European Championship Moto 2 seat. You said crash damage, and I've had a very, very interesting thought the other day. Mark Marcus is getting 25 million uh, from Honda. What do you think? How much crash damage comes on top of those 25 million? How oh. much is like a typical Mark Marcus crash worth? Six figures bare minimum, isn't it? I think so. Just like I mean, he has a big one and he bends everything. You know, oh God. How much uh, does a MotoGP bike cost? Well, I know I've heard north, three million. Yeah, north of a million euros. I've heard three million, but. Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with that statement. And okay, let's pretend like the Honda costs uh, three million to develop and everything, you know? And um, then he crashes it five times on a weekend like he did in Germany. Like the thing with Jean Zarco, you can basically, you're lucky if the engine survived that. Well, yeah, <laughs> like it didn't. <laughs> like the, the damage on Zarco's bike. Oh, it was bad. Like, you know, when your frame snaps. It was ripped apart. Yeah. Like a train hit like it. That, that was a million dollar crash. Guaranteed. For Mark or for both? I'd say for Zarco alone, that was a million. And for Mark? I don't know exactly what happened to Mark. As because bike. Mark's bike kind of went underneath it, yeah. so it's difficult to judge if maybe the frame uh, survived. Yeah, I don't, Could... I don't know the damage on Mark's bike, so I wouldn't like to say, but like combined, probably north of 1.5 million. But imagine like a high sider like he had in Indonesia where the bike is just rolling over the asphalt and flips and lands and at those speeds. Yeah. I mean, we always talk about the rider, but what do you think? How much damage, financial damage, does a, th a season where you have Mark Marcus or Darren Binder, like Darren Binder last year, he had like 30 crashes or whatsoever, or 27, 28, mm. something along the line. What do you think? How much money does it cost over a season to not only fund the rider and pay the rider, but <laughs> then also pay the damage they enforce? Like I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was 10 million over the course of the season for Mark Marquez. Because, just because Mark is someone who pushes limits and crashes. You accept that as part of his makeup. You probably budget for it, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was 10 million on top of his wage. But at the same time, when from 2013 to 2019, it was worth it. Yeah, in, of course. In tenfold. You know, what he brought, it was absolutely worth it. You know, Mark Marquez was priceless in that era. You know, whatever he was paid wasn't enough because of what he brought. Now, not so much. What do you think? How much extra revenue did Honda make because of Mark Marcus? Oh, I, I would say hundreds of millions on replica yeah? bikes. Replica, like, obviously, Honda branding on stuff. You know, Honda take a cut of all that. Everything Mark Marquez like the merch, for example. Yeah, like even just a Mark Marquez t-shirt. 
Yeah. You know, you pay 20 euros for that. Say 10 million people buy it. You know, that's that's a lot of money. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And that's all got Honda branding on it. So Honda take a cut as well as Mark. And then you've got the replica bikes. You know, the Repsol Honda Special Edition CBRs. Even the CBR 125s in the Asian markets, they're all Repsol branded. Like, what he makes you far outweighs what he crashes. So it's worth it. Do you think, like, people will, for example, buy Ducatis now because they see on TV that Honda is shit, Yamaha is shit, yeah. and KTM and Aprilia are somewhat in the middle. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not as good, but they're, like, okay-ish. And then Ducati is, like, dominant. Do you think that people watch MotoGP and automatically think, okay, Ducati must be better, uh, must do better street, street bikes than Honda. Combined with the world superbikes at the minute? Absolutely. Because I would argue that MotoGP success doesn't necessarily mean that you build a better street bike because there's, those oh, are two different doesn't. worlds. And you I would argue that... Guy. that like, look how many Fiat Yamaha R1s were sold. You know, yeah. like when you think about it, That Yamaha R1 had nothing in common with the M1 apart from the livery. But because Rossi was winning on it, suddenly everybody wanted one. Win on Sunday, yeah. sell on Monday. It's that simple. Yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering how much... I mean, I totally understand that this has to be a positive influence because if not, nobody would do it if they were just burning money with it. But how much? That That's like the thing. But... It, you will never know because... It must be enough that it makes it worth it. Like, how much does a MotoGP team cost to run per year? 50 million? Yeah. Or 100 but, million? But depending on your rider wage, I'd say anywhere between 25 and 50 million. You know? I mean, let's take, uh, let's take Ducati as an example. And um, Honda. I mean, we could, we could argue that Honda's... Uh, What Honor is paying Mark Marcus is more than Ducati is paying all eight three uh, all eight riders. I wouldn't disagree with that statement, no. But then Ducati also, for the flip side of that, are funding eight bikes. They have to build eight bikes. They have to repair eight bikes when they crash. So you know, you lose in one area, you gain in the other. Yeah, but I don't think it's too much money that ducati spends on building more bikes because they already have the production set up for yes. the gp23 yeah. so I'd say if you build 25 like, to 50 mil for ducati it has okay. to be Let, let's take the upland let's take 50 and how much does it cost for yamaha only two bikes fabio quadraro basically uh, got a whole lot of money to stay with yamaha yeah i'd say they're probably on the lower end of it so like, like 20, 25 yeah like I'd, i'd say you couldn't run a motor gp team as a factory team for less than 20 million a year would be my estimate like i, I don't know if that's certain but that would be my estimate just based on everything you know because like even down to like travel hospitality you know factory team is going to have 10 times more members than a satellite team yeah so they've got to move all those you know everything is just amplified in a factory squad i mean thinking about it like 25 million seems kind of low i i am on the lower side but i do think it'd be a bare minimum i think for yamaha it should cost like 50 million and for ducati like 80 90 it depends on development as well 
What's the speed? I mean, Ducati of... is developing Yamaha isn't so. Yeah, like you... if, if, <laughs> this, what speed are you developing parts? At what speed are people in the factory developing parts? You yeah. know how much how many... material are you using to develop these parts that don't work? You know, it, 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 how I many? Just, I I don't think we could genuinely. How say. many work hours do Ducati employees spend on the MotoGP project? Yeah. Are there sole MotoGP uh, workforces? Are there people who work part-time uh, for superbike things, for MotoGP things, for streets things? You have to factor all of this in. And, and also, imagine how much stuff they develop that doesn't work and gets thrown away. How many manners yeah, go like, into that? Yeah, like you know? Aprilia's carbon fiber uh, frame is a good uh, that example. That is coming. That is coming in Austria. But imagine is, how many yes. iterations didn't work that didn't even make it to testing phase because it was too stiff, too too flexy. You know? Okay, let's let's wrap this budget thing up real quick because I want to talk about this carbon frame. And I think like 50 million sounds reasonable for Yamaha and like somewhat between 70 and 100 million for Ducati. Okay, I'll back it. Uh, but- especially like with energy prices in recent uh in recent time like the price of good engineers i mean you're paying so much more than you did five years ago because everything is so much more expensive traveling is more expensive testing is more expensive fuel i mean it's all factoring everything is so much more expensive than it used to be and i think that ducati with all the audi and then volkswagen backing behind it they don't have an issue paying this but um do you think like ducati's value or Ducati's MotoGP team combined with the Superbike team adds like above 100 million plus in revenue every day of the week yeah 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 it's because, that simple I mean it has like, it makes it has to be. it has to be yes but thinking about it like how many people th- say okay I'm going to buy a Ducati now because they think Ducati is the better motorcycle but they don't necessarily go out and buy the Ducati because it's Ducati. They go out and buy the Ducati because they're a Peco fan. Because they're a Jack Miller fan. Who the fuck is a Peco fan? <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. Like, like <laughs> you know, like they're a Jack Miller fan. They're a Bastianini fan. If you were a fan of the rider, that manufacturer then normally translates to your street bike. Yeah. He started it and it does seem to continue as a go. Let me quickly let the dog in, and then we will talk about the Aprilia carbon fiber <laughs> chassis. You carry on, buddy. Oh, oh, Hello. oh, thank God I did do it right. I was just bricking it then because I've just uploaded a new profile picture on my personal Instagram. Oh, no. And I shit myself because I thought I put it on the page, but I haven't. So, all good. I, it happened to me once. I posted a meme on my personal page. Fucking oh, Yeah, like... I, I just I'm so scared of doing it that I don't tend to touch my personal much. And uh, I would like to talk to you about the carbon fiber thing while I'm cuddling this fluffy bear. Cute as hell, fifthly. Yeah, peanuts so beautiful. She had some uh, something on her eye, and what are you uh, doing? That is one yeah. cute dog to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> but she had an excitement day. I mean, she went to the stable this morning, and then, oh, like, uh, the neighbor's daughter came over. And yeah. peanut and children is always a little bit difficult because, for whatever reason, she hates children. 
oh. and we we don't know why i mean the breeder we got her from she's a widow and she has like a boatload of cats and dogs but no children and uh when my girlfriend i mean here in the household there are no children when my yeah. girlfriend got her like she never had any um interactions with children except like on the street or whatsoever and she was from the beginning super scared and but it 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 has gotten a little bit better like i remember like one and a half years ago uh, i was at a competition and some um some children were playing behind me while i was trying to film my girlfriend and uh peanut was going crazy and now she's just uh that's a good she's name. a little bit calmer i mean that but, is a good name though peanut yeah <laughs> yeah we always uh, call her miss nut makes sense <laughs> yeah and we have like a boatload of nicknames for her well that happens like and then they change yeah. every day don't they and then yeah it never course. ends up with the name you give it originally it just doesn't happen like it's just the official name now and when we uh, it's like when your parents yell at you uh with the yeah uh, with your full name we yell at her with peanut for yeah. example if she's eating cat food or whatsoever peanut <laughs> yeah then yeah that's exactly what it is like every dog just goes through five names where they get a new nickname every yeah. week and eventually the original name is lost apart from yeah. official like vet stuff always away. yeah always away Okay, Aprilia's carbon fiber chassis. I want to know about it. What do you know? I just saw a picture of it and that they're developing it. I know what nothing. Do you know? I ain't going to like you. I know nothing. Um, I love it. I love the fact that carbon fiber is making a comeback in the chassis. It makes a lot of sense in terms of being a material. But also it doesn't. If you crack it, the whole thing goes. The thing is Ducati tried for so many years and they failed so badly yes and but then i mean ducati had basically like the same philosophy like uh, ktm has like ktm has the steel frame and KT and ducati had the monocoque chassis they brought it into MotoGP gp and it just didn't work it didn't work and, but they also did not have the engineer and expertise at the time nor the designer to pull it off if they had had would... Gigi at that time, not Filippo Preziosi, they would have stood a much better chance because Preziosi was a genius, an absolute mad genius, much like in the much like Gigi is. But he was so stubborn when it came to that carbon fiber monocoque, even though it was clear it didn't work. It was too stiff. It wore the tires too much. It was just not right for the time. Now, with the advancements we've made in carbon technology in the last 20 years, I think it could be a better material than aluminium or steel. It has to be perfect. Don't get me wrong. Like, because Ali is so good now and the frames are so, so right for the bikes because we have so much experience with aluminium frames. But the ceiling of potential in today's carbon fiber is infinitely higher than it was 15 years ago and aprilia is kind of what ducati was in this sense that aprilia is very groundbreaking with their technology they brought the ground effect fairing to moto gp yep and nobody was using this they uh, if i'm not wrong they started with the hex spoiler yeah they did like, do the spoiler but i think the stegosaurus yeah. came first 
you. I'm not quite sure about it. I think it. the Stegosaurus came Mizano 22. And then I think the spoiler came Asia 22. No, this... But I could be wrong. Like, don't quote me on that one. I think they took the lead from the Stegosaurus. But there's potential that they may have had a spoiler of their own before, if that makes sense. Without knowing anything about it, it would look stupid to go from a Stegosaurus to a, basically a T spoiler. Yes. It to like logically would start with okay, what works on a car? Let's put this one on, and then you come up with. Like, I absolutely uh, believe like that Aprilia had their spoiler in development. Yeah, I do think it was pushed through when Ducati brought their Stegosaurus. Like I could be. I'm. I'm not sure about it. I'm. Yeah. Uh, Don't quote me on it because I can't remember the timeline. But I. I. I would bet good money that it was already in development while Ducati yeah, were doing their Stegosaurus. Yeah, but um, Aprilia is very groundbreaking in what they do at the moment, and I totally could imagine that uh, oh. Peanut doesn't know where to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> she's listening to this carbon fiber chassis talk, and she's like, I ain't into it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, finally, she has her uh, box here, like her travel box, and she likes to sleep in it a lot. But now she's trying out different uh, different places where to sleep because Always she's not sure. Yeah, but Aprilia is groundbreaking, and I could totally see them breaking into the ground with the uh, carbon fiber chassis. But it's it's a very big risk because what if it doesn't work? What if you run into the exact same failure Ducati ran into? And then you lost like three or four or five years of development and have to start all over again. Well, that's the difference in that they still have the aluminium chassis to fall back on. The monocoque was Ducati's only direction. And yes, but imagine... If Ducati had ima- the steel, as they did in 08, well, 07, slash 08, whatever, but um, if they'd stayed with the steel as a backup instead of going all in on the monocoque, they would have been okay. And I think that's where Aprilia have done it smart. They have a brilliant chassis now. They like I am of the opinion they have the best bike on that MotoGP grid. And no. I think it's better than Ducati. The only problem it has is it cannot follow bikes. But alone, I think it's the best bike. But it has alone doesn't win races. <laughs> three no, it has three problems. Or like when you think about it, four. It can't qualify. Because it can't it can't start. It can't follow. And it's too inconsistent, which I believe, or where I believe that Ducati has nailed down the electronics. You can't see the electronics. That's why everybody's forgetting about them. But I believe the electronics are a big part of KTM's and Ducati's success. And I think that Prilia is lacking in this department a little bit. Yeah, no, I would agree with you. I think the Ducati is a much more consistent bike. You know, anybody can get on it and get the best out of it. And that is the hallmark of a fantastic machine. You know, that riders with all different styles, they got eight very distinct styles on their bike and they all work. That, that's to me is the hallmark of a fantastic bike. But I do think the Aprilia, when it absolutely, like, I, I still think it's the best bike in that its ceiling potential is the highest. I think it's a better bike when it's at its best, then shall we say, than the Ducati is. And I think that, but the problem is what they have built cannot follow eight Ducatis. 
with yeah but also like this this argument kind of falls apart when you take ktm into consideration because ktm was the best bike on the grid when miguel Oliveira rode it in catalonia but it didn't work anywhere else yes and this like ktm it. has a very very uh big talent for building a bike which works on five weekends and the rest of it it's shit and now this season they more or less are consistent but yeah. they still aren't at, at the level uh, where ducati is at or where aprilia is at so um and aprilia also you have maverick vinales who's in itself super inconsistent so god yes. knows if it's maverick or if it's aprilia and Aleish is a very very interesting case because i think Aleish from a talent perspective is not there like where peco fabio mark of he Can't isn't and he isn't in this one but he always gets like the most out of it and he's a dog I mean, he's working all the time and he's always... But I don't think that he has this natural God-given talent of riding a motorcycle like other riders have. And that's why he isn't always at the top. I I have to disagree with Aleish, your assessment of Aleish, in that I think Aleish is good enough to be classified as an alien. I think what he he does... There's a reason he's been in MotoGP for so long on so many factory teams. Like, you know, he rode for the Suzuki. He should have gotten the factory Ducati seat in 2010. Didn't happen. And then for him to be able to stay with Aprilia through the, well, let's be honest, the dire times and consistently beat anybody who was his teammate, like that to me shows talent. Yes. I, I do understand why people don't think Aleish is that because he he can he can have a meltdown and be very off. But my point about Aprilia is that the way I would put it is this. If you put the Aprilia at the front of a race, I don't believe the Ducati or the KTM would catch it if it was leading the way. Whereas I think the KTM and the Aprilia could catch a Ducati leading the way. And I think a Ducati and an Aprilia could catch KTM leading the way. But the problem is that that's not how MotoGP works. So even though they may have the best bike, Ducati is still the most consistent bike and the best bike to be on in a race. I think that is the difference. Back to Aleish, I learned to respect Aleish on the CRT bike. Because he was on a bike which had no business of competing with the prototypes. He was always getting the most out of it. He was always getting the most out of this open Yamaha. And led Stefan Bradl to believe that this was the way to go. And leaving factory Honda or like the LCR Honda with factory support. Yep. But um, I don't think that we could talk about Aleish as like a Fabio, as like a Marc Marquez, as like a Pekka Bagnaia or Jorge Martin, Marco Bizecchi, like those riders who uh, have God-given talent to ride a motorcycle and you just don't know how they're doing it because they're so incredibly good. I think Aleish is very talented, but like in MotoGP perspectives, like in the upper upper end, but not like in the top uh, top five. 
but um, I think that he has a way of always maxing out the bike and learning how to override problems. And I think like the early days of his MotoGP career with like the Prama Ducati and then the, um, the Aprilia and then the Open Yamaha and the Suzuki and the early Aprilia factory days taught him that to always get out the maximum out of it. Yeah. And I think this is benefiting him right now. But I wouldn't say like from a, if everybody had the same bike, I wouldn't say that Aleix would be uh, in the top five riders, you know. Well, I will disagree with that, but let me put it this way then. Andrea Iannone is one of the most naturally talented riders ever to exist. But he's also an idiot. Oh, he's a complete fucking moron, and I hate him. <laughs> but in terms of pure, sheer, natural talent, Iannone is one of the best to ever exist. And... 95% of the season on that Aprilia, he could not match what Aleish was doing. You know what? I think the um, the phrase, um, hard work beats talent if talent doesn't work hard, is the perfect description of what happened at Aprilia. Mm. Yeah. Because but... Aleish is working hard. And Iannone is hardly working. Yeah. Iannone seems like the type of guy to always had good speed because he was naturally gifted and then thought, okay, this is enough. Yeah, and it ain't enough. And never had this, like, I don't want to say he never trained or something, but there's a difference between training and training. Yeah. You know? He never pushed himself. after it, being obsessed with winning. Like what Mark Marcus says, Mark Marcus is obsessed with this nine title. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy the, what he endured over the last three years just to get this t- damn title and like to be equal with Rossi. Like, he is an obsessed man. He's a maniac, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's it. And, and they did not have that driving no, mindset. No, Absolutely. no. He had a factory Ducati with basically the world was open to him if he would have worked harder. Like, a couple of years later, he would reap uh, would have uh, reaped all the rewards in the world. He would have because been I'd... 2020 world champion. Absolutely. If, he, if he'd worked hard, he would have been 2020 world champion. Jorge Lorenzo would talent, have been 2020 world champion. You know? only with talent and a drive would have four or five titles by now. Make no mistake. Because he was... Especially that... if he stayed at uh, Yamaha. Yeah, he is that fucking good. You know, if Granny had plum, she'd be grandpa, wouldn't she? You know what I mean? Big, you know, it's big if. But the thing is, Iannone went on his day, could do things that not many other riders could do. And if he could not match a leash for 95% of a season, just on pure talent, then I, I, I honestly think a is the most underrated rider in the paddock, full stop. But I think Aleish was working with his engineers while Andrea Iannone was banging chicks in the whirlpool. And that's the reason behind yep. it. Yep, that's it. Going to get you know surgery before tests and stuff. Yeah, you know? like making the next Botox appointment instead of uh, making the next appointment with Ducati engineers. Yep, and that's why Aleish has stood the test of time as well. Because he worked so hard to get the yeah. most out of himself, out of his package, out of his team. Like, he must be an absolute bastard to work with Aleish. Yeah. 
but look but at what he's like bringing. Kobe Bryant, you know, Kobe Bryant was an asshole as well. Yeah, but he was obsessed with winning, and Aleish has this mentality. Yeah. he has like, like the Mamba the mentality of MotoGP because yeah. they know the rewards it brings. And if we are being completely honest, outside of the track, Aleish is a role model. You know, he's a brilliant family man. You never see any controversies with him. The only controversy is, is in the MotoGP sphere. But look at his body. He is shaping his body in a way where you think he looks like he's on steroids because he, he doesn't hold any body fat. He's cycling all the time. But, like, again, Andrea Iannone was cycling steroids and uh, Alessius Bagaro was cycling uh, on the mountains, yeah. you know? That's the difference. And this, he is determined. And that's why I believe Alessius is good, not because he's talented. I would disagree with you in, on the talent stage, but I also absolutely agree like, with the work. Like, for MotoGP standards, talent. I, I still like, think Alessius is in the top five riders talent-wise as well. And I think that, combined with his work ethic, is why he's... I wouldn't say single-handedly, but he has dragged Aprilia. He's made Aprilia believe and then has the talent to back it up, which is the, yes, but the crazy thing. The thing with talent is, like Maverick, like Andrea Iannone, like, for example, Alex Rins, those are super talented riders. It shines through every now and then, like Austria 2016, where nobody could touch Andrea Iannone. I guess Andrea Dovizioso must have been the maddest person on planet Earth that day yep. because he dragged Ducati out of the shithole and then this motherfucker comes along and wins his uh, first race for Ducati and uh, you have to wait again. You have to be P2. I mean, he must have been out of his mind. It was mind the wrong Andrea. Today. Yeah. And um, I mean, Maverick Vinales, on his day, he is the king of the world. He's so incredibly good because he's so incredibly talented. But for one reason or another, he can't keep it together. And uh, I think that a rider like this who has this God-given talent, it shines through every now and then. Because the stars align in the perfect way and then you, you are untouchable. Then you have a Maverick Vinales in uh, Qatar, for example. Or like in Silverstone 2016. For some reason, it just, or like a Brad Binder in 2020, where talent just shines through, like in Bruno 2020, you know, yeah. in the Czech Republic, where he won his like second or third ever MotoGP race. Or Mark Marcus, like talent just shines, shines uh, through every now and then. And Mark Marcus is like the combination of being obsessed with winning and having this sheer determination with God given talent. So and I think. If Elaish had this talent you're talking about, it would have shined through in the 125cc days, in the 250cc days, or in his MotoGP days, like where Maverick won a race and on a Suzuki. So or do you where... not think Argentina 2022 is not an example of that? Yes, it is an example, but it was a little too late because then I think this whole boatload of work and determination just got the best out of him because he had now an incredibly good bike which the Aprilia works on some tracks and is unbeatable like in Silverstone again or in, a, in Argentina that day but he has the opportunity to get the most out of the best bike on that day and then he will then he will win the race but he uh, he lacked this 
for some reason, I don't know why, he lacked this, let the talent just come through and win a race. We're against or, all odds. Or, as exactly the same point as what you're saying, has he never had the package to show his talent until now? I think in the 125 or 250cc days, he should have won at least a race. If this I know true. his 250 was a three-year-old 250 at the, when it was current. Like what the one he was racing was three years old. Like the two fifties were perfection to me. Like what a two fifty two stroke is is everything a race bike should be. It's light, it's powerful, sounds incredible, looks incredible. It's the whole shebang. But they were so unbalanced when you had riders like Eugene Laverty on a seven year old bike against three million euros worth of factory two fifties. It's very difficult to show who you are unless you had a full factory machine then. And Alicia was not on that, which I think also blunts it a lot. Like, I do think he should have won a race on the Suzuki. Catalonia 2016 should have been his. How he somehow snatched defeat from the jaws of victory that day baffled me to this day. Possibly even Qatar 2014 on the forward bike he should have won. But he didn't. That would have been insane. He, he had it though. Like he was but fastest Mark in the Marcus, practices. Mark Marcus in 2014 was on a different planet than everybody. He was. I mean, this guy lost it all in turn one, basically. Just came back, overtook the whole field, casually won by like five seconds or whatsoever. If Alicia had gotten in- that pole that he should have gotten twice, might I fucking add, because he crashed it on both fucking pole times. If he had got that pole, he would have won that race. But he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> if your aunt had balls, she would be your uncle. Exactly. That's the thing, isn't it? It's like... That's the fucking carbon fiber thing I want to talk about. <laughs> I, I don't... I'll be honest with you. I don't have the knowledge of it enough to but fully discuss it. I would like to, to imagine a little bit. Like, what do you think would be the benefit of a carbon fiber chassis? In my eyes, it would be the feel of the chassis because carbon flexes differently to metal. So whether they can bring that feel enough because it is a stiffer construction, I don't know, but there must be something they are doing in it. It might even be half carbon, half titanium, because that's what they're doing now. They're doing carbotanium, which is carbon weaved into titanium sounds mental but like there's no reason they couldn't do it with aluminium i guess maybe maybe not but like it may not even be a fully carbon chassis it may just be a carbon fiber composite with something else like we don't know enough about it to make an informed decision in my opinion because we've seen one picture of it like how do we know it's not just a carbon cover covering up a new aluminium chassis you know what I mean? Like, imagine, imagine the whole MotoGP world, like Ducati uh, losing their heads, like, fuck, we have to develop yeah. a carbon uh, chassis again just for Aprilia to fooling everybody. It would be hilarious. Well, that's the thing. Like, we don't know. It might well be the case because we've not actually had confirmation that it is a carbon fiber chassis. And if we have, I haven't seen it. But, I, like, I, I absolutely believe it is a carbon chassis. I should put that out there. You know, like it, it, 
it looked right. You know what I mean? Imagine, but just like, imagine we, they put some some uh, carbon fire yeah. fiber uh, on it to just make it look like it could be a thing. You know, like I I have my doubts. Don't get me wrong, I absolutely have my doubts that that's what they've done. But my god, how troll would that be? <laughs> <laughs> but like, if I'm if I'm if I know as much as I think I know, which you know I, I might not. The, in terms of tire wear, it could be extremely beneficial. You know, there's a reason they run carbon fiber swing arms now because they're kinder on the tires. If it's a full carbon chassis and it flexes in different ways to the aluminium one, that's that makes these Michelins come alive. You know, they they, they could have found the formula, but on the other side, it could be a glorious failure, and then they go back to the alley. We just don't know. The thing is. I'm just uh, thinking about my dad because my dad always uh, had cycles uh, from steel, steel frame cycles. And uh, then aluminum uh, framed cycles came along and then carbon fiber uh, cycles came along. And um, he basically always told me, don't ever buy a carbon fiber one it might be lighter it might be better but if you crash it once the whole frame will be broken and you you wasted five to ten thousand euros of your money because it's just not worth it for somebody who's not like a tour de france rider and thinking about this like what if you just lose the front a little bit crash and then you have like a tiny um tiny uh broken part in the in the um, carbon fiber chassis how long does it take to strip everything down pull the engine out put it back together and then have the bike ready like is oh, this it. suitable for racing i mean it, it could be better on on lap times i mean sure but what if not like or, or what even if to further your point what if you have a low side get back on the bike and then the carbon frame is cracked and then yeah. it just goes under braking yeah you know like the sam Loss uh, thing in moto 2 in austria a couple of years ago you remember when he was on the grisini and he crashed picked the bike back up then um was riding again and under braking this um mm. the whole bar this, fell off yeah yeah the bar the bar broke that's mm. the correct word uh, yeah. the bar broke and he was basically uh his arm went into nowhere's land yeah and that's you it's know, super dangerous but like they must have fail safes in place for that, which is why I do believe it's not fully carbon. Because that way you alleviate some of that risk. Like, I'm no engineer. I, you know, I, I couldn't build a bike. But if I know as much as I think I know, it, the benefits of it are behavioral as opposed to anything else. I don't know if I read it on your page or somebody else's page, but basically the IG post was this uh, picture of the carbon fiber frame. I never posted and, that, so it can't be me. Okay. So basically uh, what was said is the the variations you can do with it is limitless. And you, you can do everything. And with aluminum, you're more or less limited on what the material gives you uh, because you can't do whatever and with uh, carbon fi fiber you basically can do whatever but uh, the thing is the stiffness 
Is it suitable? I mean, we all know that GP bikes are incredibly stiff. How much stiffer is the carbon fiber and what does it do for you? Because at some point there is a too stiff. Yeah. Stiffness and, takes um, away from feel. Yeah. And then the crashing point. This is very, very interesting because when, when you crash and like I never thought about it, what you say, what if you pick the bike back up and then it just snaps in half? It's dangerous for you. It's dangerous for everybody else because it's super unpredictable. Imagine you open the throttle and the thing just breaks or yeah. you, you break and go into the corner and then... Well, that's what your, I was thinking. Um, more on the brakes. Because the, the, the lateral Gs they're pulling on those brakes. You know, if, yeah. if there's one crack, like, like cars now, where you can have carbon fiber wheels as an option, you curb that wheel, you have to replace the whole thing. Yeah. The frame would be the same. Which is, leads me to believe it's not fully carbon. Like I, I'm open sense. to being wrong, but I, I would suggest there's some form of a, a weave in there. But again, I, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing if it does come to Austria. Apparently it will come to Austria. And if that is the case, I am really looking forward to seeing what becomes of it. Because honestly, that could be the biggest step we've seen in MotoGP since Wings. What it could bring in terms of development potential is outrageous and then because you can do whatever yeah and like think about think of what someone that might have ducati can do who've, who've smashed it so far with everything they brought you know like if they pour their resources into a carbon chassis which i'm sure they already have I, i'm pretty sure every single manufacturer on that grid even suzuki probably tried a carbon fiber chassis somewhere down the line Exactly, except Yamaha. Even Yamaha, I'd say. It'd probably be a cheap carbon. I mean, but... <laughs> Yamaha didn't even develop the arrow. I mean, I watched uh, Bruno 2020 recently, and then I saw Frankie leading the race, thinking like, huh, this Yamaha looks similar. Yeah, but I think that's partly down to Yam, partly down to Fabio's development plan, because he keeps going back to the 2021 and 2022 bikes. Yeah, but what's what's he going to do if the thing is just not fast enough? Going backwards ain't the option for me, though. I just yeah, but I mean, I remember in the test I talked with uh, Jack Gorst about it. For, you know the guy from yeah, Donna, yeah. yeah, absolute uh, stud. I like to talk to, about him. I like to talk to him so much. And uh, basically, was he said the race pace was good on this uh, big arrow thing, but. They couldn't get one lap pace in, and they were like 19th and 20th on a timesheet when people were trying their qualifying pace. And what's the point of having a good race package if you can't overtake? Because the thing lacks horsepower, it lacks rear grip, you can't get close enough. I mean, forget the whole braking and front tire thing at the moment. You can't get close enough on a Yamaha to even overtake. Yep. And um, then you have those big ass wings who just slow you down even further. And you have uh, you're starting from uh, from the last row. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's not it's it's the Aprilia problem. Yeah, but Aprilia has at least uh, one lap pace more than Yamaha. Yeah, more than Yamaha. But like, I mean, a 1974 Boltaco has more one lap pace than a Yamaha at the minute. So you know, that's not a high bar. <laughs> so yeah, but we are talking about Yamaha at the moment. So. Um, I mean, I don't necessarily think that it's Fabio's fault alone because he also came out and said that Yamaha gives him this 10-page PDF and only uh, satisfy half a page of it. 
So what's he going to do? I mean, is it his fault that he wants a more powerful engine, then Yamaha brings a more powerful engine, but then you have no regrip anymore? Well, all I'm saying fault? is 2021, a certain A. Davizioso said that Yamaha do not need more power. They need rear grip. You know, yes, but you generate rear grip due to a better engine. Like, forget your chassis, forget your arrow. Mm-hmm. 80% of your rear grip comes from your engine. Correct. But and if, if he's saying, you know, if Dovi, a man famed for development, is saying you need rear grip, or Fabio Quadraro, who has gotten on a ready-made bike and won a championship, has no development skills whatsoever, says, no, just give me more power. Fuck the rear grip. I know who I would I, have listened to. I don't think that Fabio is that stupid. Yeah, like I, I know I'm paraphrasing, but you know where I you can Yeah, yeah, but you can have all the power in the world. Like you can have an F1 engine inside a motorcycle. If you don't have rear grip, it it's it worthless spins. because... Yeah. Like you have to have rear grip, but like on a motorcycle, the power develop, um, the power development, the way it gives power to the, to the rear wheel. I mean, for everybody to, you have to understand it like in super, super slow motion. There's those pistons who go up and down and the, the wheel isn't turning consecutively. It's like little hits, but so close together that it seems like it's turning, but it's just hits from four pistons who just go up and down then you you have like the screamer engine who has like two pistons simultaneously going up so you have like the 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 and yep. with the big bang you have four or various different um firing orders you have bup, 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 and that's where those weird sound then you can play with the firing orders and you have to have a very very smooth but um linear power development yes inside the engine and like the engine characteristic is the most important thing because we can't use the power anyways i mean the electronic is cutting half of it uh, out uh, we have such a tiny amount uh, on, of grip on the asphalt it's not about power everybody has more than enough power what you need is power to the ground you need rear grip usable you need power. engine character yeah usable power so basically you need an engine which allows you to accelerate in the smoothest way possible without rear um, without the rear wheel losing grip that would be the ideal scenario if 100% of the power the engine generates is transferred to the to the tire to the road but then you have like a amount of slip you want to turn the bike and to uh, accelerate because there's if you have zero uh, slip on the rear 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 wheel it's not good either because then you're accelerating too slow you need like a tiny amount of it but you need to balance this out yep. so you need slip engine, to turn it's, the it's, bike it's, yeah i think power is always uh, like the thing which is brought to the public as we need to make it as simple as possible for them to understand in a way but i think motor gp tra- um um, MotoGP uh, manufacturers would happily trade fifty percent of their uh, horsepower if they get the perfect engine who has this um, has this one hundred percent power to road ratio. I just uh, yes. elaborated on like like obviously forget three hundred horsepower first and foremost. Yes, it is it is impossible. But a hypothetical yeah, scenario: yeah. imagine one hundred fifty or like two hundred horsepower, like a road bike has with one hundred percent 
of this power being translated uh, to the road. I mean, fuck 300. If you can't, uh, if the electronic is cutting half of it all the time, then but I don't believe the electronics are cutting it as much as you say now, just because of Aero. Aero is now forcing the bike into the ground. Ride height devices are forcing the bike into the ground. So now I think power does actually matter because now with the Aero, with the ride height devices, with everything that you have as a package, just having the one job of forcing that bike into the ground, making the contact patch as high as it can be, suddenly... 20 horsepower loss might make a difference. But still 80% of your rear grip comes from your engine. So if you have 20 horsepower more, this might be cool. Like on a track like Qatar, when you go into those really high-speed sections, then it's cool to have those. But you need still an engine which is characteristically suitable for a bike. Yes. You know? And that's basically my whole point. Of course, this power always is good. Every rider wants more power, but they want power they can use. Yep. Well, I think what Fabio meant, honestly, was I want more top end, not I want more power. Yeah. And I think behind closed doors, this was communicated because I don't think Fabio is that stupid. Oh, oh, no, no. Like Fabio is a very intelligent rider, but he's also not a proven developer. Yeah, but how? He's younger than me. Yeah. Like, I know. Like, I'm not criticizing him in the slightest. Don't get me wrong. Like, it's not a criticism. But when, if you were choosing to listen to him and his direction over Davizioso's suggestions and then wonder why you're in a mess. But the thing is, Yamaha isn't necessarily notorious for listening to, like all the Japanese uh, manufacturers, you can have the best riders in the world if you're not listening to them, but just do what you think is, is correct. That's why Ducati is good, because Ducati has eight bikes on the grid and they listen to every rider and say, I don't need to listen to the fastest rider. I need to listen to every rider because every rider will give me valuable information and then the fastest rider will make the most out of it. Yep, that's it. That's, that's the way to go. Even DG gives direction to Ducati. Of course. You know, and, like- and oftentimes the best understander of something isn't the best at doing it. Yeah, like I, I for one think that actually... Ducati are an example. You know, people detract from it and say, "Oh, they shouldn't have eight bikes on the grid." Like, who gives a fuck? Like, honestly, yes. Because honestly, I get so annoyed of this. Like, if they are prepared to one, put eight bikes on the grid so that the grid is not empty, and two, provide eight bikes that are capable of podium in pole position in or winning, which they all are right now because they're either JP twenty twos or GP twenty threes. And then three, putting riders on it who are capable of winning those. The only two riders I would say are not, you know, consistent race winning potential riders are DG and Zarco. I like to say uh, Ducati has eight competitive bikes and seven competitive riders. Like DG's never going to win a MotoGP race, sorry. But neither is Zarco. So swings around a bit. Yeah, but Zarco because he's stupid. He's not stupid. He's just not good enough. <laughs> Sorry. No, I think he, I think he is good enough, but he finds always a way to fuck it up. Like like Zarco like, is uh, invaluable to Ducati. Don't get me wrong. Like he is yes so good at what he does for them. But don't expect win a race. But like Argentina is a very good example. For some reason, half the race Zarco is nowhere while Bezeki is building his lead. 
and then towards the end, he's faster than everybody. He takes what like, he, he takes about to crank up, doesn't he? That's what it is. Like yes, it's but wheel spinning. But then, then you have races where he's good at the beginning and fades towards the end. Like keep it together for yeah. once. You're a two-time world champion. You have to be able to to at least win one race on a Ducati. But Come the on. thing is, as well, Zarco knows what he is. He is Ducati's racing test mill. Like, like, like for me, that 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 is a problem in a way. Because I know for a fact that Zarco's settings are never the same race to race because he's trying new things with Ducati all the time. So you can sort of forgive him for not being able to make it last when it's a completely different bike from the last race, you know? Yeah, but Silverstone last year, he crashed in the lead while he had like eight tenths of a second uh, of the lead. So, I mean, either way, he fucks it up one reason or for another. He's he's never going to win a race. But what he does bring to Ducati is valuable information, which is why he still got his ride. Because if this was a guy who couldn't give Ducati info either, he would have been out three years ago. Yeah, of course. I mean, he's doing exceptional work. But like Silverstone this year, I mean, he goes into the race with a soft soft where nobody should ever go into a Silverstone Again, race with a soft soft. Not his then, That's the problem. Then, and that's what fucks me off. I mean... He's consenting to basically be in Tyrus is his bitch. Fault. That's what he is. No, I think that it's the race tires are his call. He's doing whatever he wants on this one, like Ineos and he needed. He went into the race with a soft soft as well. And uh, my theory behind it was that they were speculating on rain, which they got, but then they couldn't use it. So I think they they speculated on, hey, I will go with a soft soft be competitive in the first part of the race, then switch bikes when the rain comes, and then I'm good. But like, if Zarko went into the race with a soft medium like every everybody else did, the conditions aligned for him that he could have gone for uh, for the victory because he isn't fighting for the championship. Yep. He has all the um, all the freedom into the in the world to go for it and risk it. And if he crashes, he crashes. But for some reason or another, he always finds a way to A, be competitive at the beginning of the race and then like crash or whatsoever, or be competitive at the end and be nowhere in the beginning of the yeah. race. Like I, I have been told by a couple of different people, I don't know how true it is, like that Ducati pick his tires as well. No. Yeah, I don't know how true it is. Don't quote me on it, but I have been told unprompted by more than two people, two separate people. This season? I don't know it was because like... because I talked with uh, Simon about this and he basically said uh, that I was right that Zarko is his uh, as Ducati's test rider basically but he said he talked with them about uh, what what version of the GP23 they want to use like with the big belly pan the ground effect thing or the thing pecolite and uh, he was asked if he um, or like all the guys were asked if they were pushed into one direction or another basically said no i just took the one i wanted and simon had the theory that ducati is in such a good place this season that they don't need to test things live with zarko because like they go to tests and basically don't have anything to test because they're they're that far ahead and it could be true you know i just i relay what i've been told yeah but whether it's true that's correct 
I mean, what I've heard from Simon is basically that what you're saying is correct for the past seasons, but this season it kind of changed a little bit well, because potentially, then yeah, Ducati is in such a good place that they don't need to do this anymore. Yeah, potentially, then in that case, yeah, I I don't know for sure. Like I I wouldn't like to say because I don't know. I just I have been told it, and I was very interested because yeah. like, I was thinking even if they're picking tires, like, and he's still staying. Then you've just basically signing away any chance of being world champion by doing that. What do you think about his move to uh, Honda? Uh, well, if he can see out the season, if the bike is still as bad next year, which I don't believe it will be, if the bike is as bad next year and he can see out the season without getting hurt, he will be an invaluable asset to them. Whether he can hop off that Ducati onto a Honda and not want to throw it in a skip, we don't know. Because I believe it will be a huge mistake for both. And the reason behind it is his KTM days. Yeah. He is a parent or was. I don't know if he changed. Uh, during his KTM days, he was not able to come from a Yamaha, which worked, to go onto the KTM, which was still early in their development, and develop a bike which isn't capable of doing anything at the moment and making it. In. That's what we talked about Aleish. What Aleish did with Aprilia, he is not capable of it by the looks of it. And uh, I think combined with Honda's arrogance that they won't listen to him, well, that would be it. Um, like that, that's the yeah. crux of it is he would need, like, Rins, I think, has had guarantees from Honda that have not been met, which is why yeah. after seven races of and, you know, a, a snap, snap body in half, he's thinking, do you know what? Fuck this. I'd rather go on a Yam. Quite rightly. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the Yamaha is equally as slow, but not as dangerous. Yep, exactly that. Like, you're going to stay on it. And I think Rins is like the perfect man for Yamaha because they wanted to replace Franco. And who was going to leave a Ducati for Yamaha? Well, that's it. Nobody. Who was, who was going to leave like a KTM? And all. I mean, I heard speculations about Augusto Fernandez if he was sacked by, uh, by a KTM. But then again, this would have been kind of a desperate situation for him. So understandable that he wouldn't, would, would have gone to uh, Yamaha. But like a Jorge Martin situation, why the fuck would he do that? And Rince is the perfect man for the job because he, because he comes from an even shittier position. Well, that's it. He's the only man. Well, him, Marquez, uh, Taka, yeah. no. and Juan Mia are the only four riders on that grid who could go trade up to a Yamaha. Everybody yeah. else on that grid would be trading down to a Yam. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And funnily enough, I've heard uh, about Alex Marquez going to Petronas Yamaha in 2019, but Lynn Jarvis uh, basically it, yep. said no because Yamaha will never sign a Marquez. Yep, that is correct. Fun. Because Alex Marquez didn't have anything to do with the whole shit. Yep. And he would have been good on that Yam, in my opinion. He's a smooth boy. Yeah, I mean, better than on the Honda. Yeah, like, he, you know, if he was able to drag that 2020 Honda to two podiums, 2019 Patronus bike, he would have been excellent on it. Like, his loss was Fabio's gain, admittedly, but it's like, I, I think they fucked up there. But they, again, Lynn Jarvis, 
I think he's past it. He, you know, he's a relic of a golden age. He needs to go. Yeah. But that's, you know, that, that is where it is. Like, you know, Lynn Jarvis now, Alberto Puig at the same time. Those two of those, like, I get that their hands are sort of tied by the Japanese attitude as well. But this ain't 2010 anymore. You know, yeah. You've got to move with the times. And I think Alberto Puig is like a Marcus guy. And when the Marcus era ends at Honda, Alberto Puig will go as well. Yeah, he will go with it. But uh, he goes. with Lynn Jarvis, I mean, I don't know how much more you can fuck up and still rest on your laurels. I don't know how far you won this title in 2021. Well, that's it's it. beyond that's the reason he's still in a job. Yes, but that's beyond me how he did that. Because he was clearly on an inferior bike back then already. But he kind of made it work to miraculous uh, wins in like Portimao and whatsoever. But um, whatever he did there, kudos to him, but it was not Lin Jarvis's work. Oh, absolutely not. No, absolutely and not. Lin Jarvis is still like, how long is he at Yamaha? He must have been at Yamaha when uh, Rossi and uh, Lorenzo were I think he's coming up to 15 years now. When did, I will Google again. When did Furusawa leave? I mean, if... I don't know what his role was before he was team principal, if he was with Yamaha when Vale came over in 2014. I'm trying to think when Masao Furusawa left, but I can't remember. I will Google it. Like, yeah, you're right about Fabio, though, but again, it goes back to me, what I'm saying. It's the weakest field in a while. Like... I, I think any field worth their salt, Fabio wouldn't have been anywhere near that title because he was on an inferior bike. How he's managed there to do that. There isn't even a Wikipedia article about Lynn Jarvis. When you go, uh, when you Google Lynn Jarvis Wikipedia, you end on a Yamaha motor racing uh, article. Oh, okay. Let's see if I can find it in, uh... yeah, there is no uh, link because in, in Yamaha, there's this overview with like base and riders and also there's principal, but uh, Lynn Jarvis uh, does not have a Wikipedia page, okay. which is fine. Oh, it's not important, but he's been in the job too long. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought I could find it uh, quite quickly, but it doesn't uh, yeah. even as... Like, like I know it's not an easy go. job, and you know, it, but the fact of the matter is, if you take a team principal job on, the buck stops with you. Yes, the, the team, and I mean the team's failure is your failure. And I mean, look at what KTM, Aprilia, Suzuki, and Ducati has been able to achieve while he's still kind of rested on his laurels with the whole Lorenzo and Rossi era. Yep, like he's just. He's riding the coattails. That's that's all it is. Like he, he's living on past glories, and he needs to go. I've said this before. I will say it again. I mean, Vinales, when he came to Yamaha, was supposed to be this golden boy of uh, bringing all the championships and bringing the old glory back because Rossi was past it and Lorenzo was gone, and um, they failed to bring Maverick the bike that worked. I will, part of it is, yeah. I will part defend of it is Yamaha. Yamaha this, though, because the part of it is Yamaha, part of it is Maverick, because Maverick is a weird one, I understand. No, 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 because 
Maverick won the first two races, don't forget, of his Yamaha career. Then they changed the tyres to a much stiffer construction on the rear. And suddenly, he couldn't ride it, the Yamaha couldn't deal with it, and it fucked them. You know what I hate? In-season tyre changes. Yeah, I agree. Like, we, it shouldn't happen. My girlfriend and I, when we were in Most, we talked about Lorenzo Baldassari. How incredible was Lorenzo Baldassari on the 2019 uh, Model 2 until they changed the rear tire from a 190 to a 200? Yep. You were talking to a paid-up member of the Lorenzo Baldassari fan club, yeah? Trust me, I, mean, I know. <laughs> how fucked up was Lorenzo Baldassari after they changed it? Yep, it shouldn't happen because he would have won that title. By a mile. Yep. He was playing with everybody. The way we watched, um, we watched 2019 Argentina, the Moto2 race recently, um, because it was just a banger. And uh, that's like the benefit of the video pass. If you have it, just watch all the races because they're so incredible. And I've forgotten half of it already. So I, I always, I like, I remember the results more or less, but I don't remember how it actually played uh, out. So. Yeah, basically, um, we watched this and Lorenzo Baldassari was in this cool and calculated role during the race. He was in P4 more or less the entire time, let everybody, because Argentina is like a very difficult track for the tires, and he let uh, Remy and uh, Alex Marquez and who else? Xavi no, he um, he didn't even make it to the to the starting grid because he the bike lost it on the warm up lap. Are you sure? Or is it twenty eighteen? I'm thinking of maybe. Yeah, but twenty nineteen one hundred percent. I watched it uh, like a couple Carry of on. weeks ago, but I forgot who was the fourth one in the um, in the top four. Nagashima. No, no, it wasn't Nagashima. Are you sure? Schröter. 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 That's the one. Yeah. I knew it was a those four, I knew it. <laughs> those four were uh, like running away from everybody. And then uh, Remy was super aggressive. It was so nice to watch. And um, they were battling and Baldessari was just chilling there. Né? And then when it came towards like the crucial part of the race, he just overtook one after another and just flew by. He was gone and... I mean, the way he won in uh, Qatar, and he sadly fucked it up in Austin, but in Jerez, he was good again. And you trust me, he won just in Jerez, the choir, I yeah. I was gutted. Yeah, I mean, because I hate entire in in season tire changes. Yeah, I hate it. It shouldn't happen, but like, I get you've got to test them, but then save them for a test or practice sessions. But let everybody race on the same tires that they started the yeah. season on and learned on. I mean, with the Model 2, I believe it was a safety concern. Yes. Because the new Triumph engine had uh, more torque and therefore the rear tire wasn't suitable because it was still developed on the 600 Honda engine. Yes. But still, you could have figured this out before. Yeah. They, I mean, you can't tell me that there weren't, yeah, there weren't any Triumph Model 2 tests prior. Uh, it's just, yeah, honestly, they, they fucked Balder massively. But... Yeah. but also, like, as you said, with Vinales or the KTM thing, KTM was competitive and then they changed the front tire and it was too soft for KTM and then they had to redevelop everything. Mm -hmm. That's it. It's just, it should be banned, but it ain't. Like, look at Most. Like, they Pirelli bring a new tire. 
yeah. explodes. Fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> like, nah, it should be fine. I talked. I talked with Remy after uh, the race because I thought Toprak slipped on like a wet patch and he told me, no, it was a tire and he showed me pictures of his tire. And um, he was saying he had no rear tire left. I mean, towards the end of the race, it was gone. Yeah. And he said to me, I can't imagine how hard Toprak was pushing that it went away with six laps to go. Yeah. Well, his tire had chunks out of it. Like yeah, that's unacceptable. It's just unacceptable. You see it. You see it like on the uh, on the photo where the tire just had no air in it. Mm. Yeah, the, the one shot of it coming off the rim. Fucking yeah. terrifying. Absolutely, Pirelli. And then they put out the statement like, uh, "We don't believe the um, the performance of uh, riders like Gardner uh, was um, was affected by the tire." Like I spoke to Remy. Uh, half an hour earlier and he said uh, the rear tire was gone i couldn't do anything well how many times have i said this today politics yeah yeah i mean pirelli can't go out and say hey we fucked everybody's race yeah literally we, we all know they did but i'm a i'm a very big fan of having different tire manufacturers yes and no because your factory teams may develop around a Michelin. And if you're running Bridgestone on that bike as a satellite customer, you are fucked. No, 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 no. I mean, manufacturers that basically a manufacturer goes or like a tire uh, company goes to a manufacturer and they come together and there's an agreement. All Hondas run Bridgestone tires. All Yamahas run Michelin tires. All Ducatis run Pirelli tires. That would be cool. All KTMs run Dunlop whatsoever. I don't care. But to come together that one manufacturer has to um, develop the tire for um, one manufacturer. And uh, then you you have this competition between tire manufacturers again. And why not? Because like we have competition between motorcycle manufacturers. We have competitions between suspension manufacturers. Uh, we have competition between like even swing arm or like or like rim manufacturers, like exhaust manufacturers. It's all part of the game. Why not tires? That's it. And uh, the other thing is, obviously, the problem with that then is single manufacturer means single development plans because you have to make your bike work around that tire rather than making your bike work to the best it can possibly be. Like, who's to say that Ducati wouldn't go three seconds faster a lap on Pirelli's? Who would say that the Honda wouldn't be competitive on Bridgestone? Yeah, that's it. You, you just don't know. But uh, And then that's even discounting the tire pressures. But to be honest with you, I just, I'm not getting into tire pressures either. It's too much. I hate, uh, I hate the new rule, but... Yeah, I, I, I'm not touching it. I, I absolutely Honestly, what bums me out the most is that it's all the result of Matt Oxley's incredibly bad journalistic work. I fucking hate it. I mean, he took the tire pressures of one race, said Ducati is running below pressure. I got the news. I have all the answers. And they're not using. Then we had this weird press conference with Gigi in his uh, in his office on the Zoom call, yeah. where he had to explain, "Hey, it's not necessarily how it works, and this is all different than it laid out in the article." And 
then they started okay we need to uh, change this for the new uh, for the new season they changed it but wasn't implementing the rule and then half a season later they tried to implement it and i mean if matt oxley would have collected the data of like let's say 10 races because if the source could give him one race why not two why not three why not five why not 10 so if you compare the data of 10 races and say Ducati is running below pressure every single time, yeah, you'd have a case and it everywhere. doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter if the Ducati is leading, if the Ducati is following, it doesn't matter if it's raining, it doesn't matter if it's dry, if it's hot, if it's cold, if it's cloudy, if it's sunny, whatever. And all Ducati, Ducatis do it. Then we could have a problem here. But one stupid race where everything, I mean, it just could have been a mistake. Uh, it's totally possible. But uh, it's absolutely, it's absolutely crazy to me that you, that you make it out of uh, one, out of one, uh, yep, out of one race. You don't take data from one thing. You take from multiple sources. Imagine you write like your doctor's thesis about it and come up with one source and one experiment. You get laughed out of the university. Yeah. Cite your source. That's just this one. Off you fuck. <laughs> That's a good end word. Off you fuck. Yep. I think so, so. Thank you. Thank you a lot for joining me. We uh, had a lot of uh, time to talk. Uh, you're, you're the kind of person I could talk to for five hours because there's always uh, fun, something new to talk. And uh, I enjoyed our World Superbike podcast uh, before the MotoGP season even started. You predicted uh, Mark Bezecchi and I'm... Uh, yeah. I did pre predict Albert Arenas as well, though. So any credibility up there is now gone. So <laughs> now you ruined it for yourself. Yeah, I did. <laughs> But yeah, no, I've enjoyed this. Uh, three hours is a, a good time. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I hope everybody enjoyed it. And I hope that Sean Dylan Kelly uh, kind of, if it's uh, the European Championship Moto2 and develop and then go back to the GP paddock, like other riders did it successfully. I mean, it's not out of the room of possibility. So um, yeah, I'm, I hope he will get it together. As you said, shoot him a message, write a comment whatsoever. Yeah. Whatever the fuck was going on at American Racing, they need to figure their shit out yes. because it's not good. It's yes. not a good look. And yeah, like, yeah. if I'm a sponsor, I wouldn't want to be associated with the team. But then again, OnlyFans are their sponsor. I don't think they really care about the optics. Do they? <laughs> Honestly, I love the sponsorship yeah. so much. Brilliant. But yeah, they just shoot yeah. Sean a message, just supporting yeah. him, you know, because he does need it right now. You know, he's still okay. this is still all quite new to him, even though he's only been there one season. You know, he hasn't been brought up in the GP paddock. Give him all the support um, you can. Uh, yeah, I'm very thankful for you to put up with me uh, for three hours. No, I've enjoyed so. it. It's good. So I'm almost happy to talk about MotoGP. So yeah, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate thank it. Thank you and goodbye.